listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Um, is it okay. warm enough in here? I could turn the heat up a bit if you want. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was kind of, I was kind of thinking that. Yeah, it's like, whoa, we'll be, we'll be sweating pretty good here. Normally, I got my fan on full blast, but you hot guys yoga? Didn't want that? Yes, hot, pod, <laughs> hot like, podcasting. Yeah, hot pod. Hey, that's a whole new thing. Yeah, hot podcasting. Hot podcasting. Yeah, probably not good for the electronics. <laughs> <laughs> Buy something new every every show. So, um, so here at the university, uh, do they got any like fun names for you? Like, do they call you like? Boss Hog. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good one, actually. No? Nope, I don't think so. Not that no. I know of. I could, I could write them on your board outside. <laughs> some, some, give people some ideas. Sure. Doctor yeah. Pigenstein. Uh, oh, oh, I like that. I like one. that one. Yeah. Or Doctor Doctor Hogzilla. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's there's, fun. There's a new Godzilla movie, right? That's kind of. When I was doing the moose stuff, they called me Doc Moose a few times, but that's I haven't heard any of those. Yeah, those ones are those I ones are not as call creative. Me my back, <laughs> yeah, you never know behind your back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hey, everybody, it's uh, Mark Hall, uh, your host, and Curtis here, and we are at the University of Saskatchewan um, with uh, guest Dr. Ryan Brook. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Thanks welcome. for coming all the way down here to oh, it was, sunny Saskatoon. Yeah, I know it's not so sunny here, but <laughs> it was. it's about the same weather we have back in BC. So uh, it was surprising. It was a pretty quick little flight and we didn't have to sleep on the floor of the Calgary airport, which no. the last time we went through, we had to. We went a fly well, fishing trip to the Christmas airport. Was it Vancouver? Vancouver we had to sleep in. Sleep on the floor oh, all night fun. long. Yeah, we came back from a fishing trip in... Uh, on the Christmas Island. So, hmm. um, so, um, Brian, you're a professor and researcher here at the university and, um, you're the theme leader, of the Aboriginal peoples and environment in the indigenous management Institute. That's right. And assistant prof uh, in the department of animal and poultry science. Associate prof now. Yes. Associate prof. I may Ooh. have to update my webpage there Ooh. or some, I don't know where you read that, but wow. yes, now I'm, uh, uh, I have a 10-year end promotion, which is a big deal. So Congratulations. Now, now I got a job for life. So <laughs> Congratulations. Your paycheck doubles, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But it, <laughs> but it does let me say whatever the heck I want, which is incredibly uh, useful when we get into some of this complex and often pretty uh, political stuff. That's that's excellent. That's, that's worth a couple bucks an hour just to be able to speak your mind nowadays. Absolutely, yes. So I can promise you I will give you 100% honest answers. That's what people are looking for. So you've, um, you've kind of been pretty diverse in what you've studied. Um, you've done research in prairie parkland, grassland ecosystems, um, research on elk and the farmland moose, uh, thing here in Saskatchewan, white-tailed deer, polar bears, mm-hmm. yeah, caribou. Yeah, we have ongoing research on caribou along the Hudson Bay coast, uh, that's cool. spent some time in the last few years working in Sri Lanka and the jungles of Sri Lanka, which is pretty cool. Studying caribou? Yeah, no, no, no. caribou. Just lots of diverse wildlife like, there. Really that's the crypto science you were there looking for <laughs> caribou. But yeah, it's so caribou. funny though. You go literally halfway around the world. It's a 12-hour time change and the issues are the same. The species change, but the people have the same concerns and the same issues of transboundary wildlife and disease and all these. Uh, it wasn't that hard of a transition actually. To, to pick to pick up on what was going going right. on, yeah, because that was that's one in my notes here. One of your areas of research is kind of 
with a disconnect between researchers, stakeholders, and the public. And so is that what you're kind of saying is a bit universal? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Everybody wants and needs more information and everybody's trying to figure out how to do it well. Yeah. Absolutely. And everybody has an agenda. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Always true as well. Yeah. And you're also researching wild pigs. Yes, that's uh, taken over my life in every possible way. <laughs> Started off as a small side project and has really become the dominant question in my mind for many years now. Wow. So why why do we have a wild pig problem in Canada? Well, there's a, a number of factors there, but the story really starts uh, about the mid-1980s. Uh, there was through the 80s and, and 90s, there was this whole push to diversify agriculture that you just can't have cat, beef cattle and, and hay bales anymore, that you need to diversify to succeed. And this idea that you weren't going to survive without other options. And so they brought in um, white-tailed deer ranches, elk ranching, emu farms, uh, you name it. And one of them was wild boar farms. And so they brought Eurasian wild boar over from various places, uh, mostly from Europe, but a, a bit from Asia, as we understand, and started farming them, mostly for meat, but there have been and still are several of these pen shoot operations as well, where you pay to go find an animal inside a fairly large fenced compound. And so they started off through the 80s and into the 90s, and nobody thought that they would survive a Saskatchewan or an Alberta winter, and nobody worried about escapes or releases, but... Through the 80s, 90s, and even today, there's animals that get over, under, and through fences. And unfortunately, there is an ongoing problem with people cutting the fence and letting their entire herd of animals go. And so they get into the wild. And as it turns out, these some of these animals, you know, origin from Siberia. They're big, huge animals, you know, many hundreds of pounds often. Big furry coat, long legs. They do extremely well in the winter, and they've just taken off. They reproduce very rapidly and they've just spread through Canada really like wildfire. I don't think is any, any part exaggeration. Wow. And, uh, obviously the prairie provinces are where the bulkier population is and, and, and people are probably not as aware of that here is in central Canada is like out in BC, right? Like we know of a little bit kind of around the lower mainland, the Harrison hot springs area. But for the most part, I would suspect this is going to be a pretty new topic to, to a lot of people listening that are going to go, what? They got a, they got a, they got a pig problem in Texas, not in Canada. Right. I've heard that a thousand times, yeah. even here in Saskatchewan, people are still regularly just you know, talking to my barber or talking to someone on the bus or whatever. And they're shocked to know that there are wild pigs, even in Saskatchewan, where we have more than anywhere else in Canada. But so certainly for many people, they're not aware that they're out there. The numbers are low. So outside of the Prairie provinces, you know, BC, Ontario, Quebec, they have small pockets pocket populations, nothing to be particularly concerned about, except that we know their capacity to expand. And so you really have, and again, much like a, you know, a fire in the boreal forest, a small one is relatively easy if you get on it fast and you're very aggressive, which is just the standard approach for forest firefighting. The exact same thing needs to apply for wild pigs. If you wait and then it spreads, I mean, we currently have the distribution in Canada is 777,000 square kilometers. That's the range of wild pigs in yeah, Canada. Yeah, and I just saw something the other day where they're projecting by, is it the end of this year, maybe a million? 
that's what we've been saying yeah, yeah. that we could easily oh, yeah. hit a million square kilometers uh, wow. at the rate we're going because once you hit that exponential curve and you have all these animals on the landscape reproducing six young per litter on average two litters per year probably um the and with very very little mortality those populations are just exploding and spreading rapidly across the landscape so very very high level of concern saskatchewan there's few places you can go in the southern half of the province now and not there are pigs would be absent um but yeah bc is relatively low right now but i will say that bc has been very very smart and aggressive on this there's been the, the invasive species groups have been very very active on this file for over two years i've been in contact with them quite regularly so i am very encouraged to see bc taking it quite seriously this is a good thing oh good good so is the is the meat market still like, is it still a lucrative thing to be in uh, as a farmer or a rancher? For a few. There are a few good operations out there that are running meat market. They're selling meat. So you go to the farmer's market in downtown Saskatoon. There's a producer here in the province that'll sell you ribs and loins and all that good stuff. And um, very, very tasty and seems to be making a go of it. So there, I think there is a market for sure. The big hope um, in the 80s and 90s was that there was going to be major shipments to Japan and that the there would be a big niche market for super high-end restaurants and that. Uh, certainly the international market never took off at all. Uh, the local market is there, but it's fairly small. And the work of maintaining them, I think, is the big surprise. A lot of people got into this thinking this was going to be a great uh, success story, but the reality is these things, even in pens, can be quite aggressive, can be very dangerous. There was a farm only 25 kilometers east of Saskatoon here, and we went out there when we first got into this whole idea. And he said, yeah, come on in the pen. And the, the wild boar were walking around in the pen, and I, I'm raised on a farm. I had no concerns. We raised pigs for years, and this is great. We're taking pictures. And after about five minutes, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, if you try and pick up one of those piglets, every animal in this pen will be on you immediately, and you'll be dead in less than 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and, and consumed. By the way, I almost yes. forgot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so consumed in ten more seconds. Yeah. So I mean, they they can be super aggressive. I met a number of producers that have lost fingers and you know had some pretty scary situations. And so they're not easy to raise, and uh, they get out very very well. They're such good diggers. They are a rooting species. So all, all they want to do all the time is dig. Uh, we've seen them go over a, a fence at least six feet tall. And uh, they can go through things, you know, you three, four, five hundred pound animal. You can imagine what they could power through. So, and part of the issue too is that essentially these wild boar farms, certainly in Saskatchewan, have effectively been rogue nations. They as far as we could tell, there's been really no standards, no monitoring, no ex inspection. The farms we've gone to last summer, my summer students went to one in Alberta, and all the piglets ran through the fence and met them uh, when they parked their car. <laughs> these animals are running in and out of the fence. And so uh, the standards and the inspection and the just the overall operation has been very, very poor overall. And so that's definitely facilitated a lot. So Saskatchewan government estimated from their own uh, information that there's about a 3% escape rate per year per farm. That's about what you, sh on average. And that's what they, they have shared. So wow. it's now 3% of what do they know? How many pigs are being farmed here? We have, nobody has any good data, really good data on how many farms in Canada, uh, where they are, 
there's a we got some data from within Saskatchewan this they have five farms that they know of we know of probably more like 14 to 16 that we know from our own research so um, in the event of a major disease outbreak we don't even know where the operations are and we have no sense of of uh, you know how they're being operated what's escaping and we certainly know very well from many many situations over the years like I say they just cut the fence wide open and let 100, 200, more than 300 animals go in one shot, just the way you go. And amazingly, there's no follow-up of any kind that we've ever heard of, that these animals are gone. Locals try their best sometimes to shoot them, but more often than not, that just scatters them across the landscape. Wow. Like it's almost, almost sounds like it needs to be treated like a like a chemical spill, like a, you right. know, a, a hazmat cruise or your invasive weeds or something. Or right? we there's... could be really crazy and treat it like any other agricultural operation in Canada. Which, I mean, could you imagine if driving down the Trans-Canada and seeing a 14 Holsteins out in the bush or, you know, out on a canoe trip and all of a sudden there's a, a bunch of horses, you know, standing on the side of the road. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and the farmer's like, oh, they got out. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't it's unheard of. Not any worth other, anything. Yeah. Any other operations. Oh, that's crazy. So, so you're right. It, it is essentially like a toxic spill uh, because... Uh, and like anything else, you, the, the only way to get on it is get on it right away and be super aggressive. Super aggressive. The last summer in the media, there was a whole hubbub about six wild boar got out of a fence near Whitehorse. Yes, I saw And nobody that, yeah. was doing anything. And it had been, uh, the media contacted me and I said, well, the answer is obvious. You got to either get those animals back in the fence before nightfall tonight or you have to euthanize them all and remove them from the landscape. That's the only way to go. And then several weeks later, still nothing had been done. And, and through mostly through media pressure, finally they went out and shot them and got them off. But uh, if they had established themselves in the wild, that could have been real trouble. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So this, is, um, this issue has really taken off in the national media here in Canada, like fairly recently. And what's... What's driving that? Why Why is this of such interest, do you think, nationally, that the, the media is? I think that uh, it's, there's a novelty to this. It's, and as you've said, that so many people have no idea that they're even in Canada, never mind maybe in their back 40. And so it's a novel issue. These things are big and kind of scary, and they've got big, sharp tusks. And more importantly, I think our research, it was really a press release we did around uh, work that my PhD student Ruth Asham and I put out a, a paper in Nature Scientific Reports in May that showed the mapping and that this is a key part of her PhD project is she made a map to say, okay, what was the distribution of wild pigs in 1990, 2000, and then present? And when you look at the present day map, 777,000 square kilometers uh, massive. Nobody, uh, and I'll be, I will say that I was more surprised that it, people say, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. When we started working, when Ruth started with me doing her master's, I said, I don't know if there's enough sightings in Canada for this project, but let's try it and see. And we have a backup plan. And then as she started gathering and talking and we collected many, many thousands of trail camera photos from hunters and nature enthusiasts. So we ran our own trail cameras and we're putting out GPS satellite collars and all these data are just pouring in. We just said, oh my God, like this is incredible. And then when you map it and put it on display like that, it really hits home. And so those maps were really the, I think we've had several hundred media interviews over the years since we started in 2010, but uh, boy, it's really exploded because of the severity and that, and that, that massive 
change. Like we're, you know, tens of thousands of square kilometers per year. Like I say, we're well on track to hit a million square kilometers of range. And um, part of the problem also is that BC can do everything right, but Alberta has some very rapidly expanding populations. And Saskatchewan being the core, like we're in close contact with Montana all the time and they're really troubled. They're wild pig free as far as they know, but they're number one by far. Their biggest risk is our pigs running across the border into Montana. Yeah. yeah. And they're deeply concerned about that. And um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, are you only dealing with just the Eurasian wild boar? Like is that as far as the escapees is that our only species like what's what's escaping are uh, the little hairless pink ones out there too like well it's uh you know the uh it's a bit of a mixed bag i guess is the plate term i'll use for it but we're working on the genetics right now so one of the things we've been asking hunters is to provide us with an ear from their pig if they shoot one any wild anything that's a pig that's running around in the wild send us an ear and we'll do the genetics. So we'll have those results soon enough, hopefully. But the but we certainly know that when, when the wild boar farming started in Canada, all the experts said, you got to cross it with a domestic pig. Domestic pig has an extra rib. So they're longer bodied animals. They're bigger. Like you, on our farm, we had Durek Landrace cross domestic pigs and our sows were 800, 850 pounds. These things are huge, massive litters, like 20 young per litter was not unheard of. And so you get these big litters, you get more frequent litters and you get bigger young. So there's all the reasons in the world to cross it. And so we think that most, if not all of the farmed animals in Canada are probably some kind of hybrid of the two. We also know that there have been a couple cases of pot-bellied pigs running around the landscape. And we do know that there have been some feral herds of domestic pigs as well. And so we do see these pink pigs wandering around the landscape and and entire uh, herd that was put out to put out to pasture, quote unquote, about four years ago. It is just was just abandoned. These are Yorkshire pigs just walking around the landscape. So it's a bit of a mess, quite frankly, and I'm a little surprised how sloppy all of this has been. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that we have a problem given how poorly all of this has been handled. And so, um, so in the wild, all of those species I mentioned, pot-bellied pigs, domestic pigs, true wild boar and hybrids, any of those are all suscrofa, the Latin name, right? And so they're all the same species. So they can and do crossbreed. And so when you see an animal running across the landscape, it could be any one of those or any combination of those, which is, uh, and unfortunately, I think what it's also done is created super pigs that in fact, that these hybrids, you know, if, if you said, Ryan, sit down and design me the perfect invasive species, (laughs) that would be the absolute most difficult or most successful spread across the landscape. I'd say, okay, well, first of all, take several different groups of wild boar from across Europe and Asia, cross them with the domestic pig and then let them go. And that's exactly what happened. And so we've got bigger animals that survive much better in the wild. You know, the biggest animal we've handled 638 pounds. Oh, those are, that's a big animal. And that was a female. There's probably males out there that are bigger. My grad student was flying and they, they spotted one that they didn't think we could fit a GPS collar on that they estimated was over 800. And that was a big boar. And we went down, we were never able to find it, but there are big animals out there. Certainly hunters of numerous hunters have shot 400 plus pound animals. So there are big animals and that, uh, at least in part is probably from that hybridization. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In episode one, when we were talking with Clayton Lamb, yeah, 
he was talking about the largest grizzly that they had collared uh, in, in British Columbia in the Rockies. And uh, he was 600 and something pounds. Yeah. You know, the coastal bears get bigger, uh, yes. the, you know, the brown bears, but he said for an interior grizzly. So like we're talking an animal. So people in the West can put this into perspective. We're talking about a grizzly bear. Grizzly yeah. bear size. A, big. a, a, yeah. a, a mature boar grizzly bear. He and, and I have discussed what who would wait in that battle. <clears throat> All right. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It would be, uh, yeah. Uh, it's amazing to think how big that is. That's that's like a 45-gallon drum on toothpicks wandering around the landscape. With, an, with an attitude and big, big <laughs> tusks. So that's, you know, that's the short version of how we got here. And of course, there was a lot of mistakes that went on along the way that, you know, the, those things happening by themselves didn't necessarily set us up for this issue. Part of the issue was that as they became invasive and we, we, uh, we started to realize that they were establishing, there really wasn't a whole lot that's been done. Manitoba was by far the most aggressive early on. They declared the whole province a control zone. So anytime you saw anything that looked like a pig outside of a fence, you could shoot it. And that's still in place today. And they use something called a Judas pig, where you put a GPS satellite collar on a wild boar, let it go. And that they're incredibly effective at finding other wild pigs. Like we can, we talk about dogs, you can talk about helicopters, all the technology, but nothing's going to find them faster, more efficient than a, than a male wild boar with a collar. Mm-hmm, and so they tried mm-hmm. that. So showing love is in the air. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is almost continuous, right? These animals are having young in all seasons of the year. And so, you know, like we think of our you know, elk, deer, moose, uh, those have a very, very narrow window, you know, like mid-May to mid-June, almost all of the young are born, caribou, same thing. And that's it. It would be a, a, occasionally you'll see some weird situation of a you know, an elk with a, with a young somewhere off that range, but they most likely won't survive. There's a narrow window while pigs are breeding throughout the whole year. And they're having what, like eight, 10? Six per litter on average, but okay. certainly we've seen litters of 13 and more. Yeah. And uh, and then those animals are going to uh, repeat that soon enough. So they'll wean after we think about a couple of months, three months, and then they'll be receptive and males will be in there uh, very quickly on, on any females that are receptive. And those young can become sexually mature in about four to eight months. So, you know, at our meeting a few weeks ago, Bob Brickley talked about what happened in Moose Mountain Provincial Park here in southeastern Saskatchewan. Truck broke down, 11 got out, they shot seven, four went into this provincial park, and all of a sudden after three years, they had over 100 animals. And that's with them still hunting. They were they were removing animals along the way. That wasn't just them left alone. And so those reproductive rates are a huge part of the story for sure. So the ecology of them, the fact that they will eat literally, well, literally almost anything. It would be interesting to do experiments and actually see if there is something that wild pigs won't eat. But that tremendously plastic diet uh, helps them for sure. They're incredibly smart. They're so elusive. You know, you go wandering around right now. Even I'll take you to the hot, hot spot in Saskatchewan this afternoon. We'll wander around for hours. We'd be very lucky if we see animals, even though we know they're around. Now, even we've seen that with satellite collared animals where we're literally tracking them on my phone. I'm saying, okay, they're right in that river valley. Okay, let's wander in, see if we can get close. Well, nothing. Just, you just never see them. It's all that ecology is certainly a big part of it, but the overall lack of action and the sort of everybody just 
has essentially hit the snooze button. You know, all the NGOs, uh, all the government agencies, everybody has just sort of, I don't know if it's, uh, I often call it management by wishing, where you you, you sort of, uh, hopefully when you wake up in the morning, everything's fixed for you. Uh, that's bad, a uh, bad dream. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of been the the approach so far. So there hasn't been a whole lot being done anywhere in Canada so far, and we're just seeing this expansion. Wow. So survival on the piglets must be really high then. We certainly think so. That's an area we need more data on for sure is get some transmitters on young ones and start to actually track what survival is. But based on all of our trail camera data, we, we know that it's high for sure. And certainly, you know, most of the range of them are in agricultural lands where we don't have big predators. Yeah. On the forest fringe, we'll see, we'll see black bears, we'll see uh, wolves for sure, you know, in the mountain areas along the edge there. If, if pigs get into that area, you know, there'll be grizzly in that, but there's no evidence that predation is, a, is really a factor at all. Right. Well, and especially if what you said earlier, if they're that aggressive towards anything that, that, harms a piglet. I mean, even something, you know, as big as a wolf or a bear or something like that, if they grabbed a screaming piglet and all of a sudden they got 12 other of these tusk things coming exactly. at them, it's like, cause, cause I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, you know, the guys back home in the West are going to be like, oh, as soon as they hit the Rocky Mountains, we got so many wolves and so many grizzly bears, they're just going to like, like clean them up like popcorn, right? But... I think they'd be wild. Grizzlies would be wise to find other options. I mean, yeah, with those razor sharp tusks and that, and they're so aggressive, just incredible. Like, I mean, if you go on YouTube and type in wild boar charge, I mean, don't do it before bed. You'll have nightmares. These hunters <laughs> see a group of four, they shoot two, shoot three, whatever survives doesn't, you know, most hunters know you get a group of white tails, you get one and they're just gone. Well, these pigs, they turn 180 and they come right at you. And it's super aggressive. And uh, there's an insane video on YouTube about a guy who has with his dog and he races up a tree and films these pigs, not chasing the dog away, but literally circling around and trying to get this dog dead. And it is just incredible to watch how aggressive these animals can Jeez. be. So is it is it true, like you said, how many, would you say 48 days till a female would be able to breed? Uh, well, yeah, about... We think about two months, probably. Okay. Yeah, we're not. And we don't so have it, great data on that. But. Is it true? And I got this, wrote this down from the conference you had a couple of weeks ago. That at 108 days, a piglet is about the same size as the sow. Like pretty close. Yeah. People have trouble picking. Yeah. The mature yeah, sow out of a. After 100 a days, uh, yeah. If you see a sounder, you'll be scratching your head in trail camera photos trying to figure out which the sow wow. is and which. They just grow incredibly fast, especially, and I, you know, if you draw a line around the distribution of wild pigs in Canada, and then you overlay where agriculture is, they match up almost okay. perfectly, right? We do expect they'll probably head north and they'll spread further, and we know they can survive in the bush, um, and in, really in almost any habitat. But certainly, where they're doing the best uh, uh, is where they're putting on lots of body condition from agriculture. And then if we get, you know, here in Saskatchewan. I remember in 96, we had 36 days where the thermometer was never below, uh, never above minus 30. And so you think, wow, what can survive in that? Well, 
lots of animals can do very yeah. well. And what pigs do is they actually tunnel underneath the snow and make these pigloos. They get into cattail marshes and they make a nest and the snow piles over the cattails and they get this beautiful pigloo that they sit in. And you imagine 3,000 pounds of, of wild pig jammed into this little snow hut. You could see the steam pouring out of the to- out of the hole from far away. You could spot them in aircraft by the steam pouring out. So this is like a sauna inside. So they survive winters very, very well. And they're act- from our caller data, they're active in all months. It's not like they jump in a pigloo and sleep for months. They're out almost every day foraging. Well, mm-hmm. man, these guys are are quite the. Uh... Quite the beasts. Well, so, I've, I've sort of said that before. Is this, you know, if, if you got all the experts together and said, let's design the ideal invasive species, I think you'd just draw a pig and go for lunch. And go for it. Put That's some it. hair on it. <laughs> big tusks. Yeah, big hairy thing with tusks. I'll just uh, give them some deer yeah. hooves too. <laughs> That's a, this is a hoof here. Actually. Yeah, there's a, oh, we'll get a picture of that. It's yeah. pretty big. <laughs> yeah, like a, definitely like the size of a white-tailed deer. Yeah, at sure. least. Yep. <laughs> so you said a sounder earlier. <clears throat> this uh, this will become an important concept when you get into talking about um, management and control. Um, explain what a sounder is. It sounds like a maritime term. Right. Yes. Yeah, sounder is the the typical term we use for a group of pigs on the landscape, and so most commonly there's one big mature female. She's the boss. She runs everything. And then she'll have probably one, two, three, four past litters with her. It will be uh, any of her past. So she might have two or three of her daughters, two or three of her granddaughters, two or three of her great granddaughters in that group. So mature females that are often also reproducing, but she's definitely the boss. And then they'll have one or two of the most recent litters. And with the young, they're very obvious that up to about four months, they have these horizontal cream colored stripes. So the the young ones are really clearly obvious. And at about roughly about sexual maturity, they lose those stripes. And so that's a good indicator. But um, yeah, that's a typical sounder. Uh, And they range anywhere from about four to six to uh, we've seen, you know, into tw- into the high 20s for sure. Um, okay. In Texas, when I was helping them there, we had a sounder group that we trapped, tried to trap all of them. We didn't get all of them, but with a rocket net, there must have been 60 some animals in that group. And so that's a typical group. And then the males tend to, mature males tend to be solitary, but they're constantly moving around. And most of their movements just involve moving between sounder groups of females. And they'll stay with a sounder group for a day, two days, three days. And they'll mate with anything that's, any of those females that are uh, receptive. And they'll move on to the next group, the next group. And then most of their time is, is just visiting because they come into heat at any time of year. They have to be constantly moving around, uh, ready for receptive females. Wow. So it's the sounders, the equivalent of a herd. A herd or a yeah. pack. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, but uh, unique in the sense that it's really a female group. Any males, once they become mature uh, or near maturity, they're going to disperse out on their own and the females will stick around. Yeah. Okay. So that's a sounder. Yeah. So that'll be important when you're talking about management and eradication. Now, so we're we're calling these things invasive. They're wild wild pigs, right? That's the term, not wild hogs. People or, use them interchangeably. Feral swine, wild, wild boar. Hog, wild, wild boar, I would argue, is is specific to the where. If you're in Europe, yes, wild boar are native to Europe and Asia and North Africa. That's their original range. That's wild boar. But what we have here in North America, generally, we have agreed wild pigs is the best generic term okay. because, as I say, it could be 
any mix of various things. So something that you see in a landscape that's hairy and looks like a wild boar could be 60% domestic pig and be actually more more Yorkshire than it is wild boar, right? And so that's one thing we've been advising governments on is when you write policy, don't say wild boar, because if anything happened to be in court, you know, said, hey, uh, we just charged Ryan with shooting a wild boar, I could say, wait a minute, that's not a wild boar. This thing is, I just took it to a lab, it's 75% domestic pig. Well, you lose, that's it, right? So legislation should reflect that wild pig or, or even free-ranging the family day something very broad that includes all of those because right. we have so much hybridization on the landscape. And, so and we use wild it's pig. out of containment, then yep. just it's a wild pig or yep. feral pig. And okay. usually I put the word invasive as a friendly <clears throat> reminder. I usually say, and when we write when we write up stuff, it's always invasive wild pig as yeah. a friendly reminder. These are these didn't uh, they're not native to North America. They're not kids' stuffy toys. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a good strategy. So. <laughs> what kind of damage are these things doing? Like, what are they doing? What are they doing in the ecosystems to other species, um, diseases, these sorts of things where we normally think that something invasive is impacting the native ecosystem, which is why we care. Um, cause we value native ecosystems, you know, over, over invasive ones. So, so there's a lot of these pigs, they're expanding. What are they doing? Yeah, they're a destructive beast. And so, you know, others and in, in our, our group, we've referred them as ecological train wrecks. They're just <laughs> disastrous to a landscape. And one thing really struck me when I was helping work on a pig project in Texas was we were working in that area and we never saw uh, insects. We never saw birds. You never saw snake. Like there was nothing. It just, and I, I remember noticing how quiet it was that you normally when you're out walking around, you hear the birds, you hear the insects and all the good stuff going on in nature and there it just, it wasn't. And uh, so the impacts that they can have are that one of the things that is really notable, notable about wild pigs is they use that nose to root up the ground. They rip up that ground to eat roots, to eat uh, insect larvae, uh, any seeds. So they'll go into seeded fields and just put that nose down and just push their body along and just rip that up and, and they'll eat all seeded corn or any barley or anything like that. They'll eat up all the seeds. They'll tear up that ground to get anything they can get under there. They also wallow. So they get into these wet spots and they, they roll around in the mud and they rip up the vegetation, any cattails or other vegetation like that. They'll dig up the ground and eat the roots. They'll eat the, they'll cut down the plants to make their nests. Uh, they'll eat, of course, any salamanders, frogs, uh, anything like that. They'll gobble up. They will literally eat anything they can get. But in these wallows, uh, they contaminate with feces. So you get E. coli, salmonella, all these nasty bacterial things that come off of them. And so these these things become useless to all other animals. And certainly, worst case scenario is that, you know, a whitetail or an elk would come and drink from that water and then get sick from those infections. So, so the wallowing is uh, disastrous to water. Uh, the rooting tears up ecosystems and, you know, like a, an elk or a deer will come and graze and they'll feed on grasses, but grasses are very well adapted to feeding like that, right? You can yeah. cut, you can cut your lawn yeah. uh, every second day for the rest of the summer and it's designed to grow back. Yeah. They're, but they're not designed, those plants are not adapted in North, there's no rooters really in North America. Okay. And so, so when you rip up those plants and you tear the ground apart, then you're looking at decades of recovery, some right. massive impacts and they will, they'll follow along lake and pond edges and uh, eat eggs out of nests in the spring 
spring. They'll gobble up any uh, ducklings or goslings they can get their hands on. They'll eat the adults if they can get them. We do know of stories of them taking down adult white-tailed deer. Holy they certainly lot. feed on fawns, like in the calving season for for deer and elk and potentially even moose. They could they could easily grab those calves and feed on them for sure. Um, and they'll just tear apart the landscape. And so the <laughs> the impacts are incredible in terms of, you know, the, a study out of the U.S. just came out, alligator nests. These pigs are going in and gobbling up the eggs of the alligators and having impacts on alligators. They're tearing out middens and and feeding on all the cash seeds of squirrels and having huge impacts on squirrels. And and if they're taking down, you know, adult ungulates, <laughs> so they affect every piece of the food chain for sure. Right. Yeah. And and they must be like uh, on the landscape when they're intermixed with other native wildlife, like they must be kind of like like when you see like a biker gang coming or something, right? Everything is just like heads the other other direction. So there's there must be some sort of like a habitat displacement kind of thing as yes, well, maybe. Uh, yeah, we just published a study on that from our trail camera data, and certainly a lot of the large mammals will are displaced by the presence of wild pigs. We published that study, and then we got some trail camera photos recently. We just submitted for publication, which is really weird, but we see a sounder of wild pigs feeding right beside an elk in the same site. <laughs> but that was probably a bait site, and that, as we know, baits attract, and that's, baits are one of the biggest problems for interspecies interactions for disease transmission. And so that's another big impact we worry about is what diseases can be transmitted so, if pigs are going and feeding in these hay bales or grain piles or or even in natural sites and you know get the saliva urine feces on those what can be transmitted to to other wildlife species and so bait sites you're talking about the ones that hunters would put right. out to sit in a tree stand or something or feeding yeah. sites where people put uh, certainly isn't uncommon for lots of folks on the prairies anyway to put out feed for white tail in late, you know mid to late winter to just to sort of feel they're mm. helping them over that late uh, late winter hump. Yep. And so well, there's lots of feed on the landscape and lots of places to interact and connect. And so, um, you know, lots of potential disease transmission there and uh, lots of potential impacts. We know that they will displace livestock. And so talking to this uh, group down in, in southeastern Saskatchewan, one of the things that got them started about being really concerned was these pigs were coming out at night and displacing cattle off a of feed. And then they would put out new feed and the cattle wouldn't even come. They had to, in some cases, farmers have had to actually create a new place to feed their cattle because the pigs scare the cattle away so much. And so the impact there. In the U.S., we know that they will uh, depredate on lambs and kids from uh, from goat and, and sheep farms. Um, we haven't seen or heard of that yet in Canada, but I mean... They'll, they'll eat anything. They'll attack anything. So if and when we start losing, you know, sheep kids and that, we shouldn't be surprised by any means. And then, of course, uh, crop damage is very, very widespread. And so we've been looking at that for a number of years with uh, collar data and other things. Our province here in Saskatchewan claims that it's very, very rare, but our collared animals spend an awful lot of time laying down in cornfields and visiting almost any crop type that's out there. And so we have a, a bit of a disagreement there, but certainly we have some pretty overwhelming evidence of, of pigs using these crops extensively and intensively as well, hitting these crops hard. And so, and in 2017, we captured and removed uh, over three dozen animals as part of a disease testing uh, program 
And when we cut those stomachs open, the only thing, the number one thing we found in every single stomach was canola. So <laughs> we know they feed on egg a lot. And, and in the U.S., that's arguably one of the number one concerns of their overall program is reducing crop damage. You know, down there, they talk about a $1.5 billion, with a B, billion dollar uh damage every year from wild pigs on agricultural crops. So they can be truly devastating. Can you imagine pigs of that size, you know, two, 3,000 pounds of wild pig over one night laying in your cornfield. And sometimes what these pigs do is they go into a cornfield in the middle and they camp out in there. It's high, tall cover, right? Normally by, you know, they always say knee high by July for corn. It's at least knee high by now, often higher, so they can lay down it and hide. And uh, as that corn gets bigger through August, then, of course, it's perfect cover. And they just feed on that corn on the inside. And you could drive by a field all summer long. It looks fantastic. Wow, this corn is growing, growing, growing. You're checking it out. And then you take 10 steps in in, in August, and it's just devastated. They flattened the inside. And they've eaten much of the crop. And so they can be really devastating to uh, corn is their number one favorite that they go after, but any agricultural crop. Yeah. Wow. So that's a long shopping list of, of things that of we worry things. about. And so one of the things my undergraduate thesis student is working on right now is we have an endangered species in Manitoba called the prairie skink. And the only place it occurs in Canada is in in and around Spruce Woods Park near Brandon, Manitoba. And uh, it's quite endangered. It's a tiny little lizard, probably not a whole lot bigger than your pointer finger. And unfortunately, if you overlay the main distribution of wild pigs in Manitoba, it perfectly overlaps with the range of that endangered species. And so we're looking at that closely right now, trying they, to sort uh, out. Are the skinks a riparian one or like the more <clears throat> dry kind of rock dry. areas? Yep. The okay. dry, sandy areas is what they like. And that landscape where the pigs happen to be is also these dr- very dry, sandy land type habitat. And so we're quite concerned because pigs being rooters and, and having this high overlap in this huge exploding population, um, that they're, this could really... Uh, be a major impact for a species that's been struggling to hang on for quite a while now. So in da- uh, there's a whole shopping list of of species at risk that we're looking at right now in terms of just starting to say, okay, where do we see overlap? Like here in Manitoba or here in Saskatchewan, pardon me, we probably have something on the order of half of all of the piping plover habitat, summer habitat for that particular bird in Canada. And uh, so you get one one or two sounder groups of wild pigs move into those and they're shoreline species, right? They're nesting on the shorelines and those pigs will just trot along that shoreline and, and, you know, they lay small eggs, but they don't, pigs don't care. They'll trample them. They'll eat the adults. If they can get them, they'll eat the eggs or young. They'll just scoop up everything as they go. Wow. Yep. Wow. Now, there was a bunch of stuff in the news um, recently about the swine flu. And there's already places in the world, weren't they, like destroying like pig stocks yes, be- so this because is, of it? So- this is African swine fever, okay. yes. And oh, okay, so this is, a, this is a big global, <clears throat> very, very, very serious issue that's going on. So, uh, so China 
has killed, you know, in a very short period, they killed a million domestic pigs trying to clean it up. Vietnam is probably close to 2 million now, I think, something like that. Um, and so there, it's uh, hit several countries in Europe and uh, especially China and Asia, but also spreading as well. And this is only a pig disease. So it's not a human health risk. It's not even a species a risk to anything outside of pigs, but it's in domestic pigs. And so it's a huge production issue. And so there is major concern in Canada of it getting into Canada. And I've heard experts tell me that if we have a case of African swine fever, we could lose our entire swine industry, you know, in months. So the wild pigs, could they be a reservoir, a transmitter? Is it going to wipe them out too? Like, is it, could that no, be No, a- there's no evidence of it wiping them out that I'm aware of. But what what is happening actually is that uh, they show that wild boar in their native range uh, can be vectors for the disease, can be reservoirs for the disease. And so right now, as we speak, several countries in Europe are building fences, trying to separate other entire countries to try and keep their wild boar out of, uh, <laughs> out of harm's way and infect their wild boar with this African. African swine fever because it's such a big trade issue. And so that's uh, definitely generated a lot of interest up for the last, uh, you know, for the first seven years of this research, we couldn't get people to return our phone calls. Like literally we would call the Canadian food inspection agency or email them and say, Hey, we're working on wild pigs. We just, yeah, you know, we'd like some advice or help on, on testing for disease. We talked to different government agencies and nobody would call us back. Like we were just off the radar completely. And now we've just noticed in the last year, now my phone's ringing off the hook. People are saying, Hey, where are the wild pigs? What are, you know, they've, there've been a lot of hard questions asked of our federal government about, mm. you know, if African swine fever shows Goes up. What is the issue? So they've moved out of that wishful management phase, which oh. you talked about before. They, no, no, they no. ignored you. They were hoping it would go away. <laughs> yeah, no, we're still in that wishful thinking mode, okay. but we're talking about it, which is a good okay, thing. Good. So that's a that's a step in the right direction. So people are asking questions, and there are meetings going on around that. And certainly, uh, make no mistake, when I had this symposium here at Saskatoon. Uh, if it wasn't for African swine fever, we would have got less than half the number that we did in terms of people attend. Uh, but that's really become a huge central issue for, you know, Canadian Food Inspection Agency and uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada and that are pretty involved in meetings and discussion about that now. We're more worried about domestic pigs and it's more likely that so, the most likely scenario would be someone would travel to China, bring back some meat product and then just throw it in the pig pen and the pigs will get it that way. But if it does start to spread and it gets into wild pigs, which are, you know, we're sitting here in Saskatoon, we could jump on a bike right now and we could be in wild pig range in minutes, right? These pigs are not some distant sort of theoretical thing. They're every, uh, Ruth, uh, my PhD student, made a map of the three Canadian prairie provinces and said, uh, where do we have wild pigs that overlap with domestic pig farms? And it's everywhere. (laughs) Um, Of all of the watersheds that we identified with wild pigs, all but two also had domestic pig farms in them as well. So, so it's a very, very serious risk here. Yep. Wow. So if, if we ever, eradicate wild pigs from Canada. It will be in the next two to three years because of African swine fever. So that is actually, uh, despite obviously being a very serious and, and disease, it could actually be the one bright light for getting rid of wild pigs. If we don't do it now, we're done. Like once we hit a million square kilometers 
uh, I think that becomes a pipe dream. Like, let's be honest here that I've been saying the same line over and over. This is my practiced line that I came up with about nine years ago that said eradication in Canada is theoretically possible, but that window is rapidly closing. Well, I've been saying that for basically nine years now. It's okay. I I have to be honest that, you know, and I say, yeah, the window is closing and we have to act quickly. Well, how many years can one say that before it just becomes ridiculous? Well, if you're talking like exponential growth rates at a million hectares or million square kilometers, then yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. We, the one big gap in our data that is higher highest priority for us is that the question we get asked most commonly is how many are there? And we just don't have good data. Like with elk and moose and deer, you fly surveys, right? You fly back and forth just like mowing your lawn. You, know, you do estimates, you model it, you come up with a good answer. And that's been pretty well, uh, you know, pretty well set up now in North America and it's done a lot. And we get a lot of really good data. But pigs, because they bury under the ground during the summer and they get into snow in winter and they're so elusive and hide under trees, typical survey methods are not going to get you there. So we're working on a, a net, we're hoping to develop a big enough network of trail cameras and set it up in a systematic way we can come up with a population estimate. Um, but uh, despite having no data, I've also said, given that exponential growth curve and what we know we're out on the landscape, uh, I've been saying this for a number of years that, you know, we're well on track to have more wild pigs than people in Saskatchewan. We're, we're about 1.1 million people in the province here. And we're certainly, although we don't have a great handle on numbers, given the rate of growth and the, and the quality of the habitat, like we're the exact same size as Texas, right? And Texas has, we've heard a few estimates, but let's say an even 2 million. Um, we certainly have at least as good a habitat as Texas. And with our agricultural production, we probably have more calories on the landscape than Texas. I, that would be my estimate. Um, and so given our habitat analysis and all that, we can easily support a, a million wild pigs in this province. And, uh, you know, what would that translate into in Ontario? Where Ontario agriculture, you know, they, they have much greater production than we have here in the prairies. Ontario, much of agricultural Ontario could easily handle many hundreds of thousands, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. Um, and then, and then as you go, as you go East, you get into the hardwood forest, which become very high caloric values when you get into, you know, the big maple seeds and the big acorn mash and stuff that. Right. And that's their traditional food. So you go back to Europe and their, their traditional range, it's the mass that they're feeding on. And these are a lot of these areas and certainly well before humans, they were feeding on these mass products and, and putting on the bulk of their condition during that period when the acorns were falling and that sort of thing. So, so they were doing quite well long before, you know, canola and grain and barley and all that came onto the scene. So they're, they're, they've evolved to do really well on carbs. Absolutely. And so the corn... Like you said, that's a, that's a natural, natural take for them. Wow. Now what about other, other diseases? Is there things that they can harbor, um, that could be transmitted to wildlife or to humans? Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly just your E. coli, there was an outbreak of E. coli in California from spinach and they tracked that down to wild boar defecating all over, coming into the spinach farms at night and defecating on them. And that was a major human health concern. Salmonella could there's, be just... There's a whole bunch of people just pause this podcast and they run into their kitchen <laughs> and they are rinsing off their bag spinach right now. This, this was a number of years ago. Also, incidentally, rinsing it... Have, 
provides you no help whatsoever. And there's probably some evidence that can make it worse. Okay, now it's gone on pause again. And <laughs> it's just going, in, going in the garbage. Oh, it's per- perfectly healthy. Uh, you know, as Sorry, far as, spinach industry. Uh, no, I think they're great. We eat yeah. uh, lots of spinach, but when, it, when there's E. coli, the only thing, as far as I understand, you could do is put in the garbage, find yeah. some good, safe stuff. But so the contamination of feedstuffs is certainly there. Like I, um, I had a sabbatical year where you get to travel, right? And so we sold our house and so we traveled around the world with my family and we visited 14 countries. And every one of those countries has wild pigs of some form or another. We went through uh, Canada, Texas. We went to uh, North Africa. We went uh, to Sri Lanka and all through Europe. And everywhere we went, talked to people about the same kinds of issues. And there, there are different diseases. Like in Spain, we worked with a researcher there, and bovine tuberculosis is a huge issue. Like twenty some percent of the pigs we worked on had bovine TB. We still have a few elements of bovine TB in wildlife here in Canada, just over the border in Manitoba, for example. They've done a good job addressing it that, but that's not to say it's gone. And then recently there was an outbreak at the uh, Alberta-Saskatchewan border of bovine TB. So that disease is not gone yet. Um, so there are uh, diseases in the U.S. that we're worried about coming up, like swine brucellosis would be one that would be quite concerned. Pseudorabies would be another one. Um, so lots of bacteria, viral things that can be spread and pigs can be vectors because they move so far. That's the other thing, right? They have these huge home ranges, which we, another thing we never predicted was how much they would move. And so they become quite ideal vectors. Wow. Like, like, like flies. Now, what about chronic wasting disease? People are going like, that's a huge issue right now. Um, you know, People are trying to get that escalated to getting government attention and funding and to do something uh, about it. And it's knocking on your door in BC right now, eh? That's yeah, the scary so thing. The, second, the second case was confirmed um, just recently in Libby, Montana, which they they once once they identify like a location of it um then they sort of go to like the little uh like a little management unit or or like a little county or something and then that whole county is like shaded and that comes right up and joins um the british columbia border so Hmm. scary disease uh but that that's a disease of is it all hoofed animals like yep any hoofed animal yep And then the other bigger question is, where does that stop, right? So far, everybody's quite convinced, they're reasonably convinced that the risk to humans and livestock is is low to zero. But these prion diseases, as you know, the CWD is not a bacteria, it's not a virus, Mm -hmm. it's actually a twisted protein. And so um, it can change. And so we're, at least my feeling right now is that I'm not going to feed any prion infected material to myself or my kids for sure. Um, and so the risk is there. Uh, to be totally honest, I've tried to get some researchers to look at uh, CWD in our pig samples and nobody really thought it was worth looking at. They said, well, it's already in the, the deer and elk, so what's the worry? But I think that these pigs are a uh, very different beast and they certainly in terms of northern expansion, the, the area that we're probably, I'm most concerned about in Saskatchewan is the movement north and infecting our caribou. 
that's one of the things I think a lot of us in the caribou world are pretty nervous because that, that did happen in Europe, right? There was right. an outbreak and they've killed thousands and thousands of them trying to save the day. And so the most likely place that would occur in North America certainly is Saskatchewan. We have the most CWD. We've got lots of white tails and mule deer, especially white tail moving into the boreal forest to overlap. You know, our, we, we don't have to drive very far north of where we are now in Saskatoon to hit Woodland Caribou Range. And there are lots of white tail along that fringe. And so um, that's a risk. But then what happens when we had pigs that live in this fringe and, and how far north can they go? If these animals are found north of 80 degrees 80 degrees north um, how far could they go in Canada probably quite far we know of a number of cases of whitetail spotted north of the Arctic Circle here in Canada and I would you know if you had to pit a whitetail against a wild pig in terms of surviving the cold and winter environment I don't know. I think I'd put all my money on wild pigs. They're pretty well adapted. And it's certainly, you know, in a lot of ways, I think could do at least as well, if not better than whitetails. So, so that northern expansion of pigs and the potential for CWD is, to me, quite alarming. Um, but we have very, very limited evidence and, and not. One of the challenges we've had all along is that nobody wants to test for anything. <laughs> And so we've got a freezer, freezers full of samples sitting from over years. I've got hundreds of years from pigs. We've got plasma, we've got whole blood, we've got tongues and everything just jammed into freezers, but nobody will test it. Nobody wants to look for any disease. So that's been very limiting. So the reality is when we talk about the disease stuff, uh, whether it's CWD or anything, is that essentially we have no clue because nobody's looked. And okay. nobody. And as far as I could tell, there's not a lot of interest in looking at all. Wow. Yeah. Now, is this true that there was one, there was a study done <clears throat> that they found CWD prions <clears throat> that passed through the gut, <clears throat> excuse me, through the gut of a wild pig? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so... What does that tell us, though? I don't, uh, you know, these experimental studies are really, really important. Uh, you know, what we might call a foundational study that at least points us in the right. It says, don't stop looking. So, yes. So it can be transmitted through. So you can imagine uh, a deer carcass and what's going to be the first thing on a carcass mm. in Saskatchewan. It's going to be a wild pig. These things are major scavengers as well. And they are re they have the best smell, sense of smell, of course. And so they're going to be on these carcasses and, and a very major potential to pass. If not, they may never get infected themselves, but they just may move. And we know they move from our GPS collar studies. They make a big move and uh, and then spread their fe fecals and start to infect the environment for sure. I think that's a, a very, very real concern that we should be looking at. But uh, we have a we have a whole long shopping list of questions we'd love to look at. But our, our you know, we just trying to get funding within Canada work on wild pigs. We've been wildly unsuccessful. Uh, <laughs> nobody wants to fund or talk about pigs like we're. We get uh, a little bit of money from the, uh, we have here in Saskatchewan, a, a fish and wildlife development fund that comes from funds from trappers, hunters, and fisher licenses. So we yep. get a little bit yep. from that. Uh, Sask Pork, uh, the development board here in the province has given us a little bit. Uh, the university has been incredibly helpful and supportive and has put some seed money here and there. But essentially, 
the overwhelming majority of the funding for all this research is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And if it hadn't been for the, what's that? They're paying for it in Canada. They're paying for all, virtually all of the work we've done over the last decade. The large majority of that is paid for by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yeah. USDA has stepped up and said, this is a very serious concern for us. And so we're willing to put money to the tune of, you know, we're getting close to a million dollars now. Um, that's a, been a made, otherwise we'd be having a very, very short podcast. And I tell <laughs> you the three things we learned from our little mini pilot studies, and then you'd be heading home because most of what we know is from, and all the big work like collaring and the Ruth's work from the mapping and, and our extensive trail camera work and all of that has been funded from the USDA. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It's it's good, but it's also painfully embarrassing to go to national, international, local conferences. And, you know, you always have to acknowledge your funding and, and I'm proud to do so. But, you know, my w- the first discussions we had with the USDA my, in my brain, I'm thinking, OK, now we've got some seed money. We're going to get rolling. We're going to get data. And then everybody's going to say, wow, this is important. Let's keep this going. Well, get, get the matching funds. We're still not there. Yeah, exactly. Stuff, yeah. And then I would wean myself off of this. But, well, here we are in 2019 and we're still. Well, didn't didn't they just announce a big program last week down in the U.S., a, a, a pilot eradication trapping program? And Exactly, yeah. Was it, was it with the big B again? The the dollar value? Do you remember? It was, uh, I think it's 75 million was, was the, uh, okay. the number for that year, for yeah. the, that year. Yeah. yeah. And that's to work collaboratively with states and local folks to take on eradication projects. Again, not this idea of let's go kill a bunch of pigs. Cause that was the or- original mentality, right? It's in the U S was, Hey, we killed 2000. Oh, we killed 3000. Those numbers, as it turns out, are relatively meaningless. It's how many of those whole sounders do you take out? Yeah. And are you actually, if you're not achieving eradication, then all you're doing, and we often call it, that's go out and mow your lawn. You know, if you want to try and eradicate the grass in my yard with a lawnmower, you're never going to get anywhere. You cut that grass for the next 30 years and you say, look how much I harvested. Look at this massive amount. The amount of grass you take off is meaningless because the roots are still there, the plants still there and they come back. And it's exactly the same with these populations. You go in with helicopter gun crews, you go in there with whatever efforts you want and take lots of animals. If there's still some pregnant sows running around or a few females and one male, those populations will bounce back in years very, very quickly. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now you've done some research or been involved in some that's looked at the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of just recreational hunting right. um, in dealing with these, these uh, wild populations. And it's not. Recreational hunting is one of the major factors that have helped to spread wild pigs along the landscape in Canada and make them elusive. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately we worked with, I've worked with hunters my whole career and they've supported and, and <laughs> indeed it's their funds that have helped to support this research. But for, for all other wildlife, there's so much good evidence that, you know, most of your ungulate populations and, and bears and other things, they're, they're regulated through annual surveys and through licensed hunting. Right. And, provinces have done, despite many will complain about the micro details, but overall, my opinion is that organizations have done a tremendous amount and have learned an awful lot over the last 60 plus years about how to effectively manage populations through licensed hunting, right? You can have does only, you can have uh, antlered animals, you can do all these things. And they've really figured out with, you know, a very, I would say generally high 
uh, degree of, of precision been able to, despite <laughs> political interference, uh, been able to provide a lot of evidence about uh, you know, what, the, how we can manage these. Right. But the problem is you put all the sport hunters in Canada out on these pigs and they're so elusive. They're so smart. They move so fast that, uh, you find a group of 10, you shoot two or three, four, five, six, seven of these animals and whatever's left becomes so much more elusive. And it's so much harder to find. They hit the heaviest, ugliest willow cover, the riparian areas. They become much more, the more you shoot at them, the more they become nocturnal. And of course, in Canada, discharging firearms at night for purposes of, of yeah. hunting is essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, but illegal everywhere. I don't yeah. think there's any place in Canada where you could do that. And so that uh, makes them... It breaks up groups as well. So you shoot up a group of 10 and the survivors split into two, three groups and just take off. And so it spreads them around the landscape. Um, and, you know, when we look at Saskatchewan, there's been lots and lots of sport harvest and the population curve is pointing straight up towards the sky and expanding. Right. So unfortunately, uh, this particular situation, sport hunting uh, by itself is not the answer. Right. It provides lots of good data for us. We get ears. Hunters are very, very good at sharing trail camera photos, getting us ears. This summer, we just put out the word and said we want to get ticks from pigs to look at, start looking at what's there and, you know, are this anything we need to worry about? Could they help spread the ticks that spread Lyme disease? Uh, ticks also potentially play a major role in African swine fever transmission as well. So we just want to start collecting and seeing what's out there. Hunters started calling, hey, I just shot two pigs last night they're sitting in our cooler or walk-in fridge come by and collect anything you want right or hey i just shot a pig here's an ear in a ziploc and i i ripped off 50 ticks here you go so hunters are very supportive as always uh with that kind of thing but in terms of the sort of what are we going to do about eradication sport hunting is just is not cutting it Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And has it been successful like anywhere in the world? Have they used sport hunters to knock or eradicate wild pigs? I'm not aware of that ever occurring. It's certainly like, you know, France kills lots and lots of pigs through there. Uh, it's quite a different cultural thing in France, but, you know, they could easily harvest four, six hundred thousand, six, seven hundred thousand pigs uh, in France <laughs> in a year. I mean, massive, massive harvest. And that's great, but the populations continue to rise, right? Once you get into these big populations, like you think just from the time we started this podcast till now, how many baby piglets were born on the <laughs> Canadian landscape? Like how many? I, we don't have great numbers <clears throat> to estimate, but if you think we're, we're certainly talking in the order of thousands of animals and they're breeding continuously, um, you know, that reproduction rate is just... It's not, you know, white-tailed deer, you see two fawns. Wow, that's really cool. Moose, you see triplets. That's a photograph you put on the wall, right? Triplets is exciting. I've I've seen a picture of a moose with five young, probably adopted some. Yeah. And that's incredible. Well, you see a sow with five piglets, that's, that's less than average. And that's only once per year versus twice, right? And so part of the challenge, I think, with governments thinking about this also has been that because we're so well adapted to managing with sport hunting and thinking about, you know, this harvestable surplus and, and, you know, with elk, of course, because elk only have one at best, you have to be really careful with elk management that you don't over harvest and knock that population down and, and have to wait eight or 10 years for recovery. So that's the mentality that all of these managers come into this with. 
And then we say, forget all of that, <laughs> throw all of that thinking away for pigs. And now we have to completely develop a new approach because it's not about harvestable surplus. It's not about increasing that hunting to the point where we control them. It's no, we actually have to go in and find a sounder group of 11 animals. And then we go in and we kill 11. And with our group and, and you know, in the States and all these groups, that's the mentality is if you go out for 11 and you get nine, you you say that was a waste. We just took all our time and energy and it's effectively we may as well have just put a little pile of money on our desk and lit it on fire <laughs> because we've accomplished nothing. Killing yeah. nine of 11 accomplishes nothing because that they'll just come back and the next year, those two that were left and maybe others that move in, all of a sudden it was 11, now it's 20. So 20, you kill 17. Great, we killed 17 pigs. Come back the next year, it's 45. And the pot, despite massive harvest effort, you're killing, you know, estimates have said that, you know, in the order of like 10 to 24% of your population, sport hunters can collect. 24 seems to be about the highest level we've seen in the literature. You probably need about 80, 70 to 80% just for the population to level off. So if we went out in Saskatchewan, uh, from now for over the next five years and we killed 80% of the population, we'd probably level it off. It wouldn't go down. It wouldn't go up. It would just stay about level. So um, that's the kind of change of thinking we have to yeah. take to this and say, yeah. okay, we found 11, we took 11. We found 12, we killed 12. We found 20, we took all 20. And that's the only way to have any success here for sure. And so when you're running these, one of the very successful tools that have been used a lot in the U.S. and starting here in Canada are these big, large panel traps um, that, you know, might be 15, 20 feet across, uh, big, large traps. And the idea there is you're watching in real time on your smartphone and you, you've you been watching them with real time uh, uh, cell phone cameras that are sending you pictures. You say, I know this group has... 10 animals. I know for sure. And you watch them come to the trap, seven, eight, nine, ten. boom, you hit the button on your phone and the trap drops and you get all 10 and that's it. And in fact, and it's really hard for a lot of people because you're like one, two, three, four, five, six, 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 where's the other? And your fingers twitching and you're, sh <laughs> you're physically shaking to come on, come on. I want this group. And it's like, we could hit that button and kill six, but then, and then we you take go the 10 and an 11 number 11. <laughs> and you're like, what, where did that come from? That also happens. But certainly the, the idea that it's very tempting to just want to get a bunch. Um, but it's the, the, the real goal is to wait until you get them all and take them all out. That's the success story. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's a big, a huge difference in, in mindset with the North American native species, where if you were to go into a herd of caribou, you know, in the North of 200 animals and take out a hundred, um, go into a valley and remove one breeding wolverine, like the implication to a North American native species is, is like you said, decades, you know, before, before that recover where these guys are like literally like the chopping up the starfish thing and throwing it back in the ocean type situation. Exactly. That, that's Well, and that's sort of the joke I've used to say, well, what's the best method? I'm like, well, a small targeted thermonuclear device is probably, <laughs> your, I mean, that's the, that'll Smart. get it done. Anything little, less than that is going to be little, probably pretty limited. Little right? miniature cruise missiles flying around <laughs> the prairie provinces of Canada looking for pigs. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the challenge is that, so we, part of the challenge is we have to change our thinking entirely and then 
then we also have to change our methods because of that and, and get away from that. But part of the other thing with government's unlimited budgets is that it's been very, the idea of hunting has been so attractive, right? Mm-hmm. Because hunters do all the work. We do it and they pay, We they pay, pay to do it. pay big money for the privilege. They contribute to research and land conservation. I mean, there's everything, all the good about hunting. And hey, they're going to fix our problem for us. This is so attractive. And that's exactly what happened in Saskatchewan is that they've embraced sport hunting and they've said, this is our solution. And they've e- even changed legislation a few years ago to try and make it easier for hunters to get out there. And so, um, which all sounds great. And it's an ideal solution if you're trying to find a cheap, easy solution. But, and, well, and well, like I say, s- in my world, if I was really smart, <laughs> I would stop talking about all this and say, yes, sport hunters, because it's been a tough conversation. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear that message. And it's the, if I was, I, I would be much uh, a happier person. My life would be easier if I would just lie and tell everybody the big lie and say, yes, sport hunting is winning the world. Let's do it all. Mm. I'd get lots of pats on the back potentially more funding and all that good stuff. But the tough reality in this particular situation is it's just not it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a, I mean, you got an animal that's, um, it's big, it's dangerous. There's some attraction to that from, you know, the perspective of some hunters, but I mean, it's a lot of meat. Um, they're good. Like, Oh my God, well, it's so good. Pig is good. It right? so I mean, good. That is know, the, that's probably one of the worst factors for controls. They're so bloody delicious. So it, it almost becomes in a way a bit of a disincentive. Now you layer on top of that from like the perspective of, of hunting in Canada where we're seeing declines of ungulate game species, you know, uh, moose populations, caribou, obviously, you know, places, uh, you know, in the Rocky mountains, mule deer are not doing as well, bighorn sheep. So, you know, those, those restrictions are becoming tighter. Species are going on to permits. Um, people are talking about, I've been trying to draw this, you know, mule deer hunt in this area for 10 years and I've never been drawn. So hunters want to hunt. And now all of a sudden there's this thing on the landscape that's big um it's good meat it it almost like it creates a situation where it's actually a disincentive to and and so now like you're saying like these high fenced hunt operations that are i am assuming they're buying pigs and putting them in there and then selling to hunters i mean that's not that's not illegal in canada uh, in or some maybe provinces, in some it province is. it is. Okay, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba banned it quite a number of years ago. Quebec allows it. I think that's it. Okay, because yeah. there was some operations in northern Alberta a long time that's ago. Still are. Yep. Okay, they're yep. still there. So Alberta has a few. Yeah. yeah so it's it's yeah it's a uh, well, and and I, it's so attractive because if you say to Hunter, we've got something that's absolutely delicious, um, you can hunt. As many as you want, 365 days a year without a license, no fee. I mean, uh, I hear it. I, I yeah, totally get it. Yeah. That it's the, this is the, you know, hunters have said this is the best thing that's happened to us in 50 <laughs> years. Is, and and uh, many hunters also get excited. They, they sometimes refer to wild pigs as the poor man's grizzly because this idea that, you know, white-tailed deer get a little boring because they just, they're fearful and they run away. Wild pigs may potentially come and try and kill you. And so that definitely adds for some, not necessarily for me, but for some people that adds a certain element of attraction to the notion that you're 
you're out there in the danger zone and you got to sort of be prepared and that's pretty exciting. And so it has all of the elements of a great huntable species for sure. Yeah. Now, do you think there are hunters that are purposely trying to spread them in the wild? Like, are they cutting the fences? Are they posing his buyers and then moving them somewhere. That's definitely a big concern in the U S yeah. Okay. I was at a conference a few years ago and somebody showed him, somebody had bought a minivan and gutted it and put plywood in the middle and they, a trooper pulled them over and he was four States from home with a bunch of wild pigs in the back to, to create a new hunting opportunity, which is a huge concern and puts a massive problem into any kind of control efforts. We're not aware of it as much in Canada. Uh, Partly because on the Canadian prairies, there's so much going on already. Why would I need to? There's if you want to find them in Saskatchewan, well, go for a drive anywhere with you know if you, if you drive more than twenty miles and can't find a spot with some pigs in it, you're probably doing it wrong. And so I don't know that there's been as much need in Manitoba recently. We've been seeing a lot of ads for bred sows, wild like a wild boar, dura cross pig for set bred sow for sale. And those kinds of just one or two small groups. And that's definitely a concern that yeah. people are, uh, there's not a lot of evidence of it, but of course that would be all highly uh, theoretical. Is it illegal? <laughs> I, I would, I wonder. Well, it's a very interesting question. I can't actually say that's truly illegal. I would hope it is, but I don't know the answer to that. But anyway, I, I'm not aware of it widespread, but again, part of that has just been so far, but in places like BC, that would be something that would keep me awake at night for sure. Yeah. Like I know in British Columbia, when it comes to aquatics, if it's listed as an invasive species and you're caught transporting live invasive aquatics, Mm. um, you're charged with it, right? Um, As you should be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and because, you know, there's issues, I think all across Canada of like, um, fish being moved, mm. uh, northern pike showing up in places that, you know, they weren't um, perch and all, all of these bass and these sorts of things. Um, the whole issue with the invasive zebra and quagga mussels, like it's mm. like that's if you are found with them in your boat, you're charged with transporting live aquatics. So mm. I don't know legislation wise, province to province, if the wild pigs are classified as a legally as an invasive species and if you're caught with them but having said that if i bought them and said tomorrow morning if i bought three bred sows and a boar and just said i'm a wild boar farmer and set them up on some land i own somewhere doesn't matter where put some sort of fence to constrain them i don't think there would be anything wrong with that and if they happen to be escaping at a 45% 45% escape rate. As we can tell, essentially nobody cares. Nobody follows up. There's no, I'm not aware of a single charge ever being made of any kind in Canada for, for people having their uh, livestock domestic uh, wild boar getaway. And I, I suspect that one could get away with that pretty well. Whether it's illegal or not would is, is an interesting question, but does it happen? Probably, probably. I, I But they're expanding so quickly. I think it's more just, get comfortable and wait a few years at the rate things are going. Well, they'll be everywhere. Right. But uh, it's certainly in a place like BC where any of those agri, like uh, I think of all those places with all those fruit trees, 
And I think, yeah, man, what I'm those, thinking about those, is the vineyards in the Okanagan yeah, and Basin. That's, <laughs> it, it, oh, man. <laughs> they just, just in uh, California, they're the number one hunted species in California, right? And so California's taken a different tack as sort of really uh, kind of embraced them, which is one way to go. Um, but yeah, they get into those vineyards and they just do destruction. They get yeah, up they, on their hind legs and they're just tearing down grapes and ripping up ground. And so, and I could imagine just sitting around like a peach tree or wait, when they start falling on the ground, they would just be gobbling those up. And so uh, more conventional agriculture, great, but they'll, there's no question they can and do adapt to any kind of, any kind of fruit as well. And this, BC has these great mild climates too, which is only going to help, right? There was a model done by some colleagues of mine recently looking at what the global density of wild pigs is most likely to be. And their model actually showed the far west coast shoreline as being, as being some of the best, the most likely highest densities. And that was largely because of climate, because, you know, where we have these minus 40 periods here, whereas you guys are golfing in late February along the coast there. So that was the model. Uh, it doesn't fit with what we're seeing yet, but that also most of what we're seeing right now reflects where the farms were. And that's one of the things that has come out of Ruth's work very clearly is that um, if you want to find wild pigs, go look near where there is or re- fairly recently was a wild boar farm. That's the, those, that's a much better predictor than any habitat will tell you. Like when we talk about ideal habitat, like a mix of, of ag cropland, wetlands and forest bush together. That's sort of what we think of as the best of the best. And that's important. And you want to go to those places, but find something like that, that happens to also be near where we know the wild boar were raised and you're, you'll probably be in business pretty quick. Now is, is when we're talking about, so our, eradication and control are two different things. So eradication is that's the last one. See you later. Problem over. Control is just damage control. You're trying to keep them below a certain threshold or out of certain areas. You're saying the window is rapidly closing on eradication. Yes. So we may be transitioning to trying to understand how to keep them at bay. Or well, uh, yes, that's a potential, but okay. we're not even really. There are a few efforts in a few provinces that are doing some things to do, and that would be certainly you know some kind of control efforts to okay. kill animals. But none of those are getting or even close to what I would call a control strategy. I mean, if you're talking about having to to just to stabilize a population, like. 60, 80, 90% of a population, and you're doing that by traps. Um, that's, that's a lot of traps on the lawn, landscape. That's a lot of manpower. That's a lot of money. If you're talking like helicopter gunners, I mean, man, I mean, you know, you've been involved in aerial game counts using helicopters. And I mean, you, you do some of your initial flights with fixed wings, right? Just to, to cut down on your cost and try to minimize when you actually use rotary aircraft that to talk about going out and putting helicopters out there, like yep. to control that much of a population. Like, I mean, the number, the cost of that would have to be billions, billions yep. and billions Many, of Tens dollars. of millions, yeah. probably for yeah, sure. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah. Um, but you know, back to that hunting point, though, the one thing I have said to hunters who are really keen, I said that 
much to my chagrin, but the reality, which I will always continue to stick to, is that sport hunting is not going to do it by itself. But if you guys formed a group, much like the, so in Moose Mountain, a group of cattle producers got together and said, nobody's doing anything. We got to fix this. If it's going to get fixed, it's going to be us. They went out through trial and error, no support, and indeed a lot of opposition and attacks. And they went out, they effectively cleaned up that Moose Mountain Provincial Park area and surrounding area. Um, and they did it on their own with their own guns and their own training and, and you know, not having any past experience with that other than elk But a hunting. coordinated. Coordinated efforts can yeah. work. They had a, they have a fixed wing pilot, which helps. Um the fact that that pilot is slightly crazy and will <laughs> skim the tips of the cattails also helps and get you right down there. But no, he's a really good pilot that will get you close. But fixed wing to help to find out, okay, we've got, the, there's a rumor of a sounder in this area. Fly that area fairly cheaply um, with a small fixed wing. Yep, there's a group of seven. Guys go out together. They have a plan. They're out in snow machines, and they go out and say, "Okay, we're going out here, and we're not coming back until every one of those animals is caught." And yeah. and so any group could do that for sure. Um, it's a ton of work, um, and so a lot of people have said, uh, "Yeah, that's interesting, but I just want to go shoot one and put one in my freezer, and that's it." Great, that's fine. You know, I have no objection to sport harvest at all. But if you really want to say I'm helping, then these groups could coordinate that and do that on their own. The other thing is that in most cases, if you're out and you see a big male on its own, just shoot it. Absolutely. So in that case, sport hunting can be very effective. If that's just one lone male, then there's no harm nor foul of taking that animal out. And that's the best thing that could be happening. When you see sounder group, then that's where this idea of shooting some proportion is counterproductive. Um, but the groups can go out and do it. We've seen it work where uh, experience, uh, we bought them a set of EHF radios with our research budget said, go for it. Keep those, you know, they have uh, on loan, they have a, a centrifuge from the university. They take blood samples and they'll spin them down. They collect samples for biological stuff. They're fantastic. And so there's nothing to stop any group of hunters to go out and do work like that. They've had a lot of learning curves and they've had to keep it top secret because what they have found is that they say, okay, we're going to meet by uh, Knee Lake tomorrow at the south end and then we'll go get these pigs. And they come in. And somebody went out that night and uh, went to that area and shot it all up. So now they say, we'll meet at the Esso station and then we'll travel together and effectively like it's in a sealed envelope and they get to the spot and say, okay, now, yes, we're going to, and they'll so drive there's around. people don't want the pigs to disappear off the landscape. That is the fundamental problem we have is that some people just want a fun, crazy shooting opportunity. And there's others that just, and we've heard this from hunters, you know, we do pretty active on social media and there's some people that say, yeah, give us a million. That's this idea of rise of having 1.5 or 1.1 million pigs in Saskatchewan, bring it on. We'll just hunt them year round and that'll be fantastic. So that is a, and in terms of land access, that's the other issue. You have to have permission to go on land and so there are some landowners, and including around the, the Moose Mountain Park, that won't provide permission because they know there's a few pigs. And so there'll always be some root stock there. They'll never be eradicated. They, they won't grant permission to people whose objective is, is eradication. eradication. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, those are, uh, there's enough of them on every single rural municipality. Our province is broken down into 296 rural municipalities. And there's probably at least one in every RM. And so we can guarantee that uh, 
that and and so in terms of the provincial control efforts, if there's a complaint made, they will send people out trying to remove them, and they'll either trap or shoot or, or snare them. But the problem is that um, in Saskatchewan, at least, if you have an invasive weed species on your property, you have leafy spurge. The weed officer knocks on your door and says, "You've got leafy spurge. We we need to treat that immediately." They say, "Yep, great, we treat it." If you say no, they have all the legal rights to say, "Well." either let me or I bring the RCMP and like we're legally, this is a public problem. We need to fix it. We're going to get rid of this weed, right? Which makes all the sense in the world to me. Um, but that does not apply to, or at least currently to wild pigs. And right. so forest so when, fires are the same way. Like they don't need permission to come onto your land exactly. without a forest fire. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, as a, growing up in a farming background and, you know, you like to have your private land and you're, you know, you play by your own rules, but for these big public issues, of course, it makes all the sense in the world that, and why should four yahoos in, you know, one part of the province ruin it for everybody, whether it's an invasive species like, uh, you know, leafy spurge or wild pigs. And so there are a bunch of policy things in place that are barriers to success for sure that could easily be changed, very, very easily changed. Uh, but there is no, there's not a lot of will that we've seen right now to do anything about it. And so, um, yeah, we're just tracking and, and really the way we're viewing our program right now is that we're trying to help where we can, but because there's virtually nobody that wants our help or information, we're the way out, we're sort of, I phrasing it when our group is saying we're preparing for the crisis. So when something major goes down, and this seems to be often what happens in these wildlife, if not other many other areas, is that governments sort of do nothing, and then there's a massive crisis. You know, the worst, you know, some of the worst case scenarios: some people are out hiking and they get eaten and killed by wild pigs. People go, and then government, well, you know what we should do? We should do something about this. And then money falls out of the sky and then they start doing something. Or this African swine fever, I think what's going to most likely happen is absolutely nothing until we actually, if if we happen to do get an African swine fever outbreak, then all of a sudden there'll be panic. Government will say, holy crap, what are we going to do? Where are the pigs? What do we need to do? What's going on? And we'll just say, Boom, boom, boom. Here's all of our decade plus worth of research. Here's all the information. We know where they are. We've evaluated the techniques. Go do what you need to do. Yeah. All, so that, all that funding will come out just prior to the election. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's all political and it's crazy. So that's kind of the way we're viewing it because it's not like anybody's gobbling up our knowledge here in Saskatchewan and using it to do anything different or to address the problem. So we're really sort of setting up for something theoretically something's going to happen at some point yeah yeah now this this topic comes up a lot when when you follow the conversations on chronic wasting disease why don't we just legislate and get rid of these elk and deer farms right so the logical thing here in canada is why don't we just legislate out these wild boar farms, you know, that are, that are doing it, but you're, you're still a proponent of good wild boar management. Like, can it, can it be done? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not. Or do you uh, think they should just like, this is too much risk. My Let's rules just do away that, with it. Uh, as a, as a general rule for me, and I, I maybe fall off this wagon occasionally, but my rule is my job is not to tell anybody what to do. 
My job is not to tell you what to do or here's, how to hunt or whatever. Here's data. My here's my evidence. job is to get good information, and I'm independent. I don't have a horse in this fight, uh, or that's not the right phrase. I don't have a dog in this fight. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean. I, you I have, don't have an escape pig. If in this the fight. population goes to a million or goes to zero, I still sit in my office. I still have my job. I do all. I would more than happy go back to elk and other animals and get rid of these stinky pigs out of my research program. But my, my strong rule that I hope I stick to uh, as best as possible is I'm not telling people what to do, but here's the implications of that. Um, the, our province in Saskatchewan has said that the Ministry of Agriculture has said we don't have legislation to ban farming. We couldn't even if we wanted to. Um, in, in Manitoba, it's completely different. It's actually regulated by the wildlife agency. So on the wildlife branch, they actually have to issue, issue you a license if you want to farm wild hog or uh, wild boar on your farm in Manitoba. So it's not agriculture at all, which is it. So every province has different policies and, and how it might be done. Certainly the notion of, of banning production um, is something that's worthy of discussion. It would be fair to say that that's uh, about 21 years too late anyway, and that the the horse is out of the barn already. And just like elk ranches right now, if we banned elk ranches tomorrow, would that really help us with CWD? CWD it might be part of a solution uh, yeah. because certainly, you know, there've been dozens and dozens of farms in Saskatchewan that have gone down with CWD and they have clearly been part of the problem. But uh, it is very late in the day to talk about that anyway. And, the, and in fact, the markets have largely taken care of that in that, you know, a, a wild boar farming in Canada peaked in 2001 and has plummeted ever since. So the markets have largely eliminated a lot. But, you know, the fellow from Quebec at our, our meeting, he said, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but he estimated certainly like more than three dozen farms still in Quebec. So they're still out there and we certainly have more than a dozen. Um, and the Atlantic might, provinces have commercial farms, don't they? They have had. They have had. Uh, I don't know the current. Part of the problem is this is a key gap in and to talk about managing any of this and to talk about banning them is like, well, how many do we have? Well, we have no idea. Are they in Atlantic Canada? I don't know. Where are the pen farms? Uh, well, we know there are three provinces. How many backyard operations? The are data there? are crap. And yeah. so if you don't have good data, you can't make good decisions. That's certainly, I think, a fair comment. But um, yeah, I think the, the, the hammer down, certainly if you said, Ryan, what's the evidence that wild boar farmers have done a good job of, in their industry? I would say, you know, uh, what was what I say earlier? They've essentially function like rogue nations. I mean, uh, the the industry itself has not really done much, at, at least on the prairies. What I've seen of regulating it, government has done very little of controlling it, and the producers themselves. It's been a, a gong show. It's been a disaster. And so, I guess asking the question: Are they, you know, have they earned the right to keep producing? It's pretty hard to make a case to say that this this particular production. You know, and you compare that to the dairy industry, who've done a very, very obviously a very, very good job, or or other other uh, agricultural sectors have bent over backwards and spent millions and millions of dollars to communicate how well they do things, to show good practice, biosecurity, all that. So certainly, wild boar farms stand out as the worst of the worst in yeah. every possible way. But uh, but again, that's those are some decisions on the table that we have a lot of information to support. Which, if you wanted to go, I, I think to be successful. The idea of of shutting down sport farms.
farming has had, or sport hunting, I should say, most of the U.S. states that have had success, they, they at least during the period of eradication, they say no sport hunting. Um, and ad- addressing, we have no chance of success whatsoever if we don't get the wild boar farming situation under control. There's probably fair to say, and we've been trying to work out the numbers, over the last 15 years, there's probably about as many... Certainly, it wouldn't be that far off to say the number of animals that escape from farms compared to the number that have been killed by other means is probably comparable. Um, so it's basically a push. All the millions of dollars that have been spent over, you know, BC has been quite aggressive. Saskatchewan definitely invests in, in killing pigs with traps and man hours and hunting. Um, and so... To say we're going to get ahead under the status quo of wild boar farming, forget it. So either get them very, very secure with tracking and monitoring and, you know, uh, getting up to speed with what would be a national strategy for any other industry, um, that or ban them. Either one of those could be effective, I think. Yeah. Will you always have some leakage? Probably, yes. So there is a role right now for some policy, some regulations that could help. And then the big question is going to be where's funding going to come from? Where's who's going to step up to the plate to actually deal with the ones that the wild pigs that are living on the landscape, the trapping, the aerial gunning, then where's that piece of the puzzle going to come from? And all of that falls under this broad rubric of who's in charge here? Who's the leader? Where are the leaders? <clears throat> is it provincial? And is it a federal thing? Is it a... It's probably all of the above. Yeah. I mean, First Nations definitely want to be part of this. We know that. Absolutely. Provincial governments have to be major on board on this. The the provinces have, you know, essentially the 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 people, The uh, it's their responsibility ultimately for yeah. sure, right? And if you're talking federally listed species at risk, so then the federal government is involved. If that happens, that has yep. not happened yet in yep. Canada. Or it, national parks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yes, absolutely. So they cross jurisdictions. They, we have to work with our U.S. colleagues as well. We have wild pigs hanging around the U.S. border as we speak. Um, so there's a whole bunch of people that should be at play. But in Canada, who's, who's leading any of this? Where is the leadership? Yeah. Um, there has been a total and complete leadership vacuum in Canada on this issue. Like I say, I mean, we were when we first started, we were like, oh, hello, yes, we're doing wild pigs, expecting people to go, hey, that's cool. That I want to learn from you. And it was literally like, and in fact, it's actually been, we've taken more attacks and abuse on this research than everything else combined. Like when we were studying bovine tuberculosis in southwestern Manitoba, entire farms were going down, right? Farms, their, your cattle would test positive and they'd back up the trucks and take all your cattle away. And it was brutal and it was awful. And it was hunters or the farmers were really, really upset and frustrated. And that was nothing compared to <laughs> wild pigs. We've been blasted so hard and told to stop talking to the media and we've been attacked and... <laughs> You know, when Ruth started, the, one of the first things she did in one of the first, probably the first week, is she called our provincial ministry of agriculture and said, hey, I'm starting this project. And they laughed at her. The person on the other end of the phone laughed. And she came into my office just like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> is this going to be how it is? And I'm like, yep. And it's probably going to get worse. And sure enough, we've taken 
Um, yeah, I was doing a presentation a couple of years ago and the deputy minister of agriculture at that time was in the audience and she got up after my presentation and talked to, after talking about essentially the things we've just talked about here today and she lost it. She just tore, tried to tear a strip off of me upside down and backwards. And so, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been ugly. So not only do we not have any leaders, but we actually have some very strong opponents, um, that have actually, one of the reasons we published that paper in nature that we did with all of those different methods and that huge, uh, huge piece, the whole paper was really focused on validating our methods and showing that with eight different methods, you get the exact same growth curve. A lot of that was in response to people, um, you know, within the provincial government here in Saskatchewan saying that, no, Ryan and Ruth are making it up to get research funding. This uh, is all baloney. Yeah. You're They're, counting the same ones over and over. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and what we've heard is that there's two places in Saskatchewan where we have wild pigs, Moose Mountain and then north in this sort of uh, um, uh, Melfort kind of country up there. And so, and then our maps are showing they're bloody everywhere. <laughs> like the southern half of Saskatchewan is full. And so, so our, our, a lot of our results have been completely opposite to the, the message that the provincial government has been saying for last many, many years. So, so no, it's been pretty interesting doing that. And, and so if you say, who's the leaders? Well, Bob Brickley and the Moose Mountain Eradication Team have been by far the leadership in all of this, but they're, they're cattle producers who've got to be feeding cows twice a day. And they've got day jobs, right? They're doing the, their, their main job, which is, uh, is agriculture. And so there just hasn't been. Like you look up all of the stories that have been done in the media over the last 10 years. It's been Ruth, me, Bob Brickley, and, you know, occasionally the, a few people, like they've contacted different hunters and farmers for comments, but really there's like three people. Yeah. Um, nobody's speaking about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. If government talks about it, they talk in very vague ways. And in most of the cases, it's actually been in the first four years. If you look at the first bit is Dr. Ryan Brooke is starting studies on wild pigs. He's quite concerned because of this global issue and look at what's happening in the U.S. And yes, we've got trail cameras showing they're here. And then they talked to somebody from the government and they said, no, it's a non-issue. We're not concerned. It's a non-issue. Or, or they run a story on Bob's crew saying, oh, these guys are all taking care of Ryan and Ruth's problem. <laughs> yes. So on to the next story. This is a case closed one. So. Yeah, it's been a very bizarre uh, <clears throat> journey, I guess we could say for sure. And, and we're not out of it yet. Uh, we've had meetings. Certainly there's been uh, some positive indications from the federal government of interest in that. And, you know, one of the things I said, which I, I am absolutely making T-shirts for, <laughs> is that uh, meetings don't eradicate wild pigs. And that is absolutely the truth, is that certainly discussion is great. Alarm is good. I mean, when I go to conferences and show these map of, of the distribution and the entire audience gasps and all the wildlife biologists are, are like, holy crap, this is serious. That's great. But. After that, you know, three months later, there's not a bit of follow-up or interest. I mean, everybody's back to status quo. Um, as we're speaking, the wildlife or the wild pig population in Canada is only going straight up. That's it. And there's no, nothing has changed uh, for a long, long time to change that. So we are still in a situation where um, there's this uh, great clip of Homer Simpson when he's in the hospital. He had just had a heart attack. And the doctor, he's hooked up to all these machines and, and the doctor says, 
or he says, how can you help me, doctor? And Dr. Hibbert says, well, and he does his chuckle and he says, um, oh, goodness, no, we can't help you all these, but we can tell you exactly how damaged your heart is. <laughs> and that's exactly our situation. Our science is documenting this expansion and fairly shortly we'll publish probably in the next couple of years, the paper that says, yes, we hit a million square kilometers and yes, we've got some density estimates and we'll continue to put out research tracking this problem. But that's... Uh, but that's it's got to be put into action. Well, if nothing happens, then we're just, we're just documentary, basically, basically making the documentary of the demise of ecosystems <laughs> in Canada. So. And the rise of hogzillas. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> wow. That's, you know, and this battle that you are facing seems to be common across all researchers in Canada, regardless of sort of like the ecosystem or the species that they're working on. It is this uphill battle um, for funding. It's uphill battle to get their um, evidence to drive policy change, to drive action there it's an uphill battle to have people accept the evidence you know there's the the discrediting and the deniers and all this sort of stuff like it it's it's common across all these disciplines and it's a uh, i i mean it you guys are doing great work but it's such you're dealing with things you're like i didn't go for school the school for this, right? Like, it's just like, I'm just, you know, here's the evidence I've done it. My peers have reviewed it. It's published. And then like, you're just like, Whoa, look what's happening. These programs are taking off, but it's like, mm. you're doing all of this. And then like, it seems like you're swimming upstream. And over my career, I could definitely point to some things where I say, Hey, I had a big impact there. I really feel like I made a change there. And I've, that that is the most rewarding part of my career for sure. Uh, but you're right. In some cases, there was a this great article that came out not that long ago called The Death of the Expert. <laughs> and this whole idea that, you know, like now we're dealing with in Canada, there's a major measles outbreak only because simply because people won't get the needle. Right. Um, and so there it's always been a challenge. I think it's fair to say, but definitely this idea of dismissing experts and sort of just saying, well, yeah, of course you have a map that shows they're everywhere, but really like. Honestly, I'm like, yes, <laughs> it really is that serious. Um, trying to get people to listen and then take action is tricky. To be totally fair to governments, and I, I think we need to acknowledge that there are lots and lots and lots of issues. And so it's not, I get to focus on one thing and spend, I could spend the whole my whole career studying pigs. I do f very much appreciate my colleagues, especially the folks with their boots on the ground in government. These are good people working hard. Yeah, I mean, but I, they're bombarded with they're issues bombarded. in healthcare yes. and just even in the wildlife field alone, caribou declines, we got species at risk. And so with very, very limited dollars and the Canadian prairies are notorious, especially Manitoba and Saskatchewan for putting very little resources into wildlife in general. Um, it, you know, it's always a battle for priorities for sure. So that's a fair comment. And there are a lot of really great people working in government that I can't say enough good about it, positive, but it's, it's at the higher levels and the decisions around funding, whether, you know, we have a, a pittance of money goes into any, like how much wildlife research is going on 
in Manitoba and Saskatchewan right now. When we were put, whenever you put out GPS callers, the, you, you email everybody under the sun and say, "Hey, what callers do you have out?" So you don't have the same BHF radio frequency, so you don't go find one five zero five two five and realize it's a mallard duck <laughs> that you're not overlapping. Right? It's just good practice. Well, so we did that, and we got uh, one animal from Saskatchewan, two in Manitoba, and North Dakota spent us a, sent us a five page list of GPS caller bears, wolves, coyotes, foxes, like this huge database of all the research going on there, and that that alone went oh okay i get it and montana's the same right they just have when we contacted Man- montana with a potential sighting near I, I emailed them right away and they're like well we know we can get five aircraft in the air immediately uh if we need more we'll have to you know we'll have to make some calls it might not be till tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) that level of resources and support in manitoba or montana has a heck of a lot less people than you know saskatchewan or manitoba yeah but they just have so much and they have a great federal program too so it's federal and state and they just have resources like crazy where it's you know we're we're running on Uh, on fumes here obviously they're doing so well that they're funding research outside the country because it's a it's a concern or a threat to to the United States as well. So absolutely, wow. it also informs them a lot because when I first went to the uh, Wild Pig Conference in Alabama, there was all these modelers that were showing. Okay, here's the continental U.S. and we know that you know California, Texas, and Florida. Basically, hundred percent coverage, right? They're in. They're, they don't talk about eradication there. There's. They're everywhere. So those southern states are dominated, and then you know your Georges and your sort of southern states have pigs. In the north, at least at that time, and, and still for the most part, most of the northern states have little to nothing. And so all the models were saying, well, clearly this is climate limiting, and that we know obviously that wild pigs are not going to survive a cold winter in a South Dakota or a North Dakota or a Minnesota or whatever, right? It's it's obvious. And then I presented my initial stuff showing our maps of Saskatchewan and everybody went, oh, crap. And so the other thing I think our contribution has been to the U.S. is not only informing them of risk, but also helping them better understand what the risks are to their northern states as well. And the reality is that uh, North Dakota climate and habitat wise is not, uh, and Montana as well, not unlike a lot of areas in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and the pigs will do very well. So that's been, a, I think, a fairly big eye opener for them as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I remember you saying at the conference that that the science is based on the biology and the ecology of these pigs is your, is your foundation to management because, and, and understanding ecology and biology, like sort of regionally, because if you're dealing with these hybrid pigs, the super pigs, like they're, they're, they could be different from area to area, um, and how they, how they, um, um, breed or interact or the time that they're, that they're giving birth and all of this, science that's looking at the 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 finer aspects of while pig ecology is important when that flows up to to management so so they understand the value of that i think from their other wildlife research in in the u.s but that is struggling with it here absolutely 100 percent true and that's what when i was on sabbatical i worked for several months with the usda in uh in Colorado, and it was just so refreshing where the the science is valued, and and you know the, the they said well every uh, the first I think it was the first Friday of every month all the wild pig 
people come together and meet and filled this huge boardroom. Well, sort of the joke we always use is that Ruth and Corey come into my office and close the door and the three of us. And that is literally a meeting of all of the Canadian wild pig researchers in Canada. And so, and there they were talking the level of resourcing and they said, oh yeah, well, we just ordered a hundred extra GPS callers. If anybody needs them, let us know and we'll give them to you. And, uh, and, and you know, it's not just funding. It's also that moral support that says, you know, this is, we're, we're taking these messages from your research and these are actually going, you know, when they go to Senate and all these things and make these big presentations at high levels, it's based all on good science. Because as a researcher, when you see your work come to fruition, then you have the 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 motivation or the incentive to to keep going, right? But I That's mean, where are you at right now? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. How how many more years can you keep doing this? Yeah, I've been asking that question. This has been a, this year is a, and, the, and the, one of the reasons to have that symposium also was to sort of get a sense of where things were at and whether there was value in continuing. I will continue to do, I can certainly say for quite a long time, we're going to continue to do the mapping and tracking that ex, uh, because I, after thinking long and hard about it, um, assuming we can get some funding to keep going, I think we'll we'll do some things for a while because we just need to realize that this government is largely um, respo- they're, they're not proactive, they're reactive. And so that we'll just get ready for that crisis because whether it's African swine fever or whether we hit 3 million pigs in Canada and realize that we're just losing our shirt here and crop damage and we're losing invasive species, I do believe at some point something is going to have to be done. Um, And so my job is to help at least to be somewhat prepared for that. I think that's the thinking I'm doing, but okay. yeah, it's uh, we, I've definitely asked myself after this, because right now we're just sort of wrapping up. Ruth will be done soon. Corey will be done probably around the end of 2019. And so it's like, okay, time, maybe it is time to switch to something else and take a pause and, and just sort of maybe keep the mapping up and things. But yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know where we're going to go right now. Okay. A lot of it always, as always, you can't do anything without funding. You know, in the early days, um, I used my startup grant when I was hired here in 2010. I used a big chunk of it to buy some trail cameras. And that was our first foray into looking at wild pigs. And then we did a, a social survey of all of the rural municipalities, all 296 rural municipalities in Saskatchewan. And that was distributed by for free. And so we did some of these things on, on nickels and dimes. And so we can continue to do a few things. But the reality is if, if no money comes... Um, then we're inevitably dead in the water for the most part. So. Even, even if you want to, you're, well, that's right. you're, you're, you're facing the And end, that's where so. we were. In, in, in uh, 2013, we had had a whole bunch of our trail cameras stolen from one area. And I said, okay, go pull them. Go out Thursday and pull them all. And they pulled them all in. We were sitting in a box in the lab. And we were effectively out of the wild pig research <laughs> business. Like there was, we weren't collecting any new data. And, and that was where I kind of said, you know, I think we're just, I think we're done here. Like we've been trying to get money for a few years or just get in opposition. Um, you know, in those early years we were saying, okay, here's trail camera photos. We're proving they actually exist. <laughs> 
Yeah, we often say uh, in the early days, it was sort of like studying Sasquatch. Yeah. And people say, oh, sure, little buddy. That's really yeah, yeah. interesting. Show and me a body. Would, they would, they would, nobody would believe you. And it, it wasn't like asking big high level questions. We were saying, okay, our first objective is to prove that they exist in this province. <laughs> and then we proved they were. And then a bunch of people said, well, they're here, but those are just escapee cell. They're not reproducing in the wild. Okay. We got to prove they're reproducing. So we got trail cameras of, of these females with litters or multiple litters. And we had that evidence, but it was just very small steps and not, I mean, that's not high end science by any means. And then it was really in 2014, 15, when we met the USDA and not only did they have the financing, but they also showed this massive support, come down to this conference, meet with us here. Here's, and they were just really keen to hear what we had to say. Um, so that that in itself, it, you know, it's not just about the funding. It's also, I I have always considered myself 100% an applied scientist. My job is to collect data, inform people, and then they take that information and make good decisions. And that's been true for farmland moose. That's been true for bovine TB. That's been true for some of the crop damage stuff and other work around polar bears and this sort of thing. We've seen clear changes because of the science that we do. Uh, in this case, I don't have any evidence at all uh, for not <laughs> getting nudging onto a decade of my life that anything we've collected has had any impact because there hasn't. Nothing has really changed. We're still pretty much in the same place we were 10 years ago. So yeah. yeah or worse. Or well, yes. Million square it, kilometers. Same in terms of interest and effort and all that good stuff. Yeah. In terms of expansion, things have just gone worse. So, uh, so yeah, you, I, I think that um, I come from a farming background. So farming and, and being a researcher, I think that the word faith is <laughs> you sort of, you put those seeds in the ground and then it's just, okay, it's up to mother nature now. I can't, to just roll the dice and kind of hope for the best. And I think sometimes research feels like that a little bit too. You go collect the data and then you think, okay, at some point, wow. And then, you know, you hear farmers, well, last year was bad and the year before that, and then this year's no good, but next year, boy, we're going to get them. And I kind of have that same feeling now, but I don't know. I, I think that this year there's definitely been a lot of interest in discussion. So certainly. I, and that's, that's good. And part of the reason why we came here is that, you know, I think, the farther you go west, um, you know, especially British Columbia. And, and you you did, I think, Ruth's part of Ruth's survey was sort of showing the level of awareness in Canada decreased when there was less wild pigs on the landscape, right? Very so, much yeah, so. part of our goal is, is to, is, this is such a big issue uh, and threat ecological threat in Canada is to try to get it onto this show and get more people aware of it. Um, so that if little things start happening somewhere in the country, then hopefully somebody's heard this podcast and they can go talk to an MLA and said, Hey, this is, this is something you can't ignore. This is a forest fire. Somebody's reported it like you gotta. So, I mean, ho hopefully we can, you know, provide a bit of a service there, you know, f for you as well. So. Absolutely. And that's part of the, the job is education. Because I always wonder, like, if you were somewhere in central BC and you saw a wild pig, like, would you go and tell people or would you be <laughs> afraid? Be like, hey, guys, I saw an elephant. Uh, and people like, OK, sure you did, buddy. In some of these places, people would be shocked. And, and I think if you didn't have a photo or video from your phone, you might have a hard time convincing your hunting well, buddies had, that you saw. I had an uncle that spotted a wild turkey in, in, in British Columbia. Um, in the 70s and he told his dad and then realized that that was a mistake 
and and now like we have a huntable population of wild turkeys there so <laughs> kind of the same thing maybe but uh, but yeah i think that this certainly and and bc has been proactive on this because we know this that with whether it's i said you know you think of a house fire or a forest fire or whatever you know you get on that right away and 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 you know if if i call 911 on my phone right now in saskatoon what's the response time like 7 minutes I mean, we have taken such an aggressive, such a, uh, we have well-trained experts. We don't try and put ourselves in a bucket of water. We have experts, we have a phone number, and we have this aggressive super, like literally like minutes of response time to put out this fire in my house. Um, if we had that kind of thinking in BC, then you could just be pig-free and stay pig-free potentially forever. So, you know, the best advice I've said to BC is think about Saskatchewan and do everything you can to not become Saskatchewan. <laughs> I mean, that's the model. Like you, you want to get to the yeah. point where you have yeah. them everywhere. And that, and that includes the Yukon and Northwest Territories exactly. need to adopt that same exactly. way of thinking. And yeah. that's why, you know, when the Yukon had six get out, they said, wow, they're all female. And I'm like, yeah, but you have domestic pig farms all over the place. These animals will rip apart fences trying to get, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, they'll find, they will find a way, as they say in uh, Jurassic Park. Life, life will find a way. Is that the, the line? That yeah, you say? yeah. And life, so, life finds a way. Life yeah. finds a way. And so, I think, you know, we said the same to Ontario as well, is that you're in the place right now where small investment of time and energy will pay off huge. Because right now in Saskatchewan, if you handed me five million bucks, I could do a lot. You know, in terms of we could have our helicopter crews netting them and removing animals and we could do a lot with five million or or if the government had any interest in doing anything, I don't know if they'd take it, but if if there was, the potential for five million would be significant, but it's not we're not eradicating for five million. Uh we're we would make a dent and we may buy some fences and some traps and remove a lot of pigs and there'd be a lot of good come from that. But you wouldn't spend five million in BC right now. You wouldn't need that much. A small investment, and you know, setting up early reporting, and you know, what I've always said is the this idea of having like nine one one pig, <laughs> where you could call somebody just like a fire, you know. And and it, we work a lot up in Churchill, and in the town of Churchill, you call six seven five bear, and they are at your house in minutes dealing with a polar bear trying to get in your bathroom window and they are on it and they either scare it away or they dart it and move it out of the way. And they're just, you know, that model has been proven to be so, so effective. That's exactly what we need for invasive species like this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're probably not going to be the last, last one. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Great advice. Um, yeah, this is this is a lot of information to digest. It's going to be pretty new to people. Mm -hmm. um, hey, one one thing I saw in my notes to just kind of touch on it the the surveys that you did across Canada is this the right number that only seventeen percent of the respondents said that they actually thought wild pigs should be eradicated? Yeah, the majority of your respondents, and if that's a representative sample of the Canadian population feel they should be kept from harm's way. Well, they, they didn't, they didn't support eradication. Part of that may reflect that. Well, why would we, there's, we don't have a problem, right? So a lack of education. I going think out, so. Whatever. And, and even that's, I mean, it was higher in Saskatchewan, but not that much higher. And in large part, I think because people aren't seeing those, 
uh, one of the big problems with wild pigs is that we're not seeing them. Okay. Like with farmland moose, if you drive between here and Regina, you have a pretty darn good chance of, and hopefully not too close of a chance, but seeing moose right near the highway or crossing the highway. And so people have this holy crap situation where they went, oh my God, you're doing 115 kilometers an hour and you zoom by a moose and it's like, okay, we got to do something about this, right? But 60, but 60 wild pigs in a cornfield and... Nobody sees them. Yeah, gotcha. They're not around. They're not visible. They're not getting into your, or at least not yet for the most part, getting Garbage into your cans on your patio. Yeah. Or your, yeah, they're not like... <laughs> Urban you know, pigs. Or with coyotes in the city where you go into your garden shed and there's a bloody coyote with the, had to birth their young under your garden shed in the city. And so they're just out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. Okay. And, and so with a lot of these new issues, people just aren't aware So it's not so much a preservationist sort of ethos within the survey. It was more well, just maybe a lack of understanding of the of the imperative or the threat to them. So it's, it's hard to know. But one of the questions also, or one of the statements to respond to that was really telling was that uh, wild pigs are an exciting new hunting resource. And there were a lot of people, a lot of people across all provinces. Yeah, that's great. And if you, if you see any of our stories that have been done in the media over the years, you, if you can hold your nose a little bit and read the comments and these some of these media ones get a little crazy but most of the comments say mm, bacon oh that's great let's hunt these and you know at first blush it makes sense this is a great great thing it just uh, adds another huntable species for people but uh, until you learn the details especially about the risks and impacts yeah and unfortunately that you know i think to some degree until we see lots of evidence that we are at maybe as a species we're probably more reactive um, that, it, you know, once we see that impact, somebody, um, you know, unfortunately hits one on a highway and, and is killed or, or you know, hunter is killed. Or they or do get like into that. the rose bushes and the flower pots. Yeah, yeah, yeah that seems into, to be a driver. Like when you think of the urban deer thing, it's. Yeah, I was flying into Alabama for this conference and the guy in the seat beside me, I was asking him, you know, you're from here. Like, what, what's the whole pig situation? I'm really curious. And he's like, well, see that window? See there? And he's pointing out as we're coming into the city. He's like, I live right there and we have pigs coming all through into the city here. And like he was on the fringe of the city, but he said that we have fence, everybody's fence now to keep the heavy fences, keep the pigs out of their eating earthworms off their lawn. And then in, sort of in, an, urban in an urban environment, <laughs> wow. you go to. Uh, you go to the biggest cities in Germany and you go to any city park and there's like a family of 12 living in the city park. These wild boar are, are, are very urban. And we're predicting that certainly I've said a number of times that in the next decade, I think we can expect some wild pigs. Uh, there's a, the North Saskatchewan river runs right through the city and or South Saskatchewan. And, um, and when that river, you know, that's a perfect corridor for animals to carry through. And we've seen cougars a number of times in and around through that, corridor and so pigs will just follow that and eventually yeah yeah wow hey i got a couple i, I love <clears throat> i love your quotes i got a couple quotes here we'll close out i'll just get you to kind of briefly sort of um summarize what you meant by them so so the key one was uh the one that you're going to do the t-shirts meetings can't eradicate wild pigs so you, you also said this one at the conference you can't dabble in eradication Absolutely. Well, you could dabble, it'll get you nowhere. Okay. But yes, if you want to talk about reduction, you can dabble in reduction. 
guys can go out and shoot them. Sport hunting will, I think in some cases, probably, especially if it's concentrated enough, you could start to see some reduction in some areas. Um, but if you want to eradicate, it has to be a full thrust. It has to have a very detailed plan. We need an international plan. We need a national plan. Each province needs a plan and even different areas need a strategy and everybody has to be rowing in exact the same direction and there has to be resources and a commitment. This isn't a one year thing. This is a 10 year minimum um, for sure. There's no way we're getting this in less than 10 years. So, so a lot of things happen have to happen very well and we have to make tough decisions like putting sport hunting on hold, um, you know, major ramping up professional control operations yeah 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 so it needs a lot of this is not a problem where we throw a little bit at it to look like we're doing something right well that's basically we're doing right now and we're getting nowhere fast yeah so we're dabbling right now we're dabbling now the other one here is um the best tool in the toolbox is leadership absolutely yes we're not getting anywhere without without leadership to to pull this together to make the case Part of the challenge for us has been for years and years and over literally well over a hundred um, interviews that I've done is, you know, we talk about the problem, but I'm essentially between my Ruth and myself, we're about the only ones that do anything in the media about this stuff. And so I think part of the problem is that when it's only one person, they're like, oh, okay. But if, if everybody was behind me and all of a sudden the Nature Conservancy and the Ducks Unlimited and the government and others were saying, even as one liner saying, yes, exactly, exactly what he said. We support, we, or if they did, because one of the things I've said at some of these meetings is the best thing you could do to help us right now is do a media release saying that pigs are bad and we support any and all efforts efforts to eradicate them and nobody has bitten at all like nobody wants to do this for whatever reason and so we just need people that are going to lead this in terms of communicating in terms of making some tough decisions and and pulling together people to find some funding and and actually do something for sure leadership is all the other pieces are never going to come together without some real leaders coming together and making this happen no key that's a key message i think across all conservation issues. And that's the, one of the biggest barriers and challenges, right? Yeah. Is that we see these conflicts within groups and you're like, wait a minute, don't you have the exact same, like everybody at this table wants to see sustainable populations of grizzly or we want to maintain this landscape. Why is everybody fighting when you're actually literally have essentially the same mandate? Yeah. That part always surprises me a bit. Like in this case, it's a little challenging because there is a small percentage of Canadians that want lots of pigs that muddies the water a bit, but absolutely, the, there's still an awful lot of people that want rid of them. And the more they learn, I think more people will support. Key thing. I think the more people learn, I believe Canadians, uh, in their hearts are very strongly tied to the natural environment in Canada, the integrity of our ecosystems when they understand what they're faced with, uh, what the threats are. I would suspect most Canadians would be behind putting the resources behind dealing with the wild pig problem in Canada. Absolutely. I agree with that. One of the things we've I use in almost every presentation is a wild pig carrying a whitetail fawn. That's probably had more, that photo has probably had more impact on people than any other research we've done in terms of when you realize that it impacts your interests and your livelihood, then you go, oh, wow. That so is a few billboards and a wrap on the university van of that picture. Exactly. There you yes. go. Wow, man, that was a lot. Thank you so much for your time 
and all of this information. That's amazing. Um, where can people find you? So you find me on Twitter. Uh, Ryan, Ryan K. K. Brook Ryan with K. the little Canadian flag. The Canadian flag. Yep. Um, we have some, I'm pretty vocal on there about a few things as pigs, especially um, find us on Facebook is one of our most uh, active things. And so that's the Canadian wild pig research project. And uh, we're pretty active on Facebook, sharing photos and video and updates on research, but just, uh, and you know what, we work a lot with hunters. And one of the questions we always get from hunters is how do you hunt them? And under this current situation, the way we're at, I'm certainly happy to, we provide lots of tips for hunters on how to bait them and attract them because they are very, very hard to hunt. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the best way okay. to get a hold of us well, for we'll, sure. We'll get that that into the show notes, the link to that Facebook page. Uh, you also have a bio on um, the university website, got a few of your key most recent papers on there. Are you on ResearchGate as well? Yep. Okay. So we'll put those those links up. People can find some of the, the papers that you talked about. Um, thanks again. Big topic. It was worth us coming to Saskatchewan from British Columbia to do this. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much. It's uh, always get good to get the word out and get people aware of this the emerging crisis. So can we go get some wild pig in a restaurant tonight? I don't know. Is that, <laughs> <not>, <laughs> because I'm like, I've been thinking about this the whole time and I'm just <laughs> thinking pig barbecue here. So well, that's a good question. It's not easy to find anymore. Um, We'd well, have, you'd have to search hard, I think. We can well, probably just run down the street and yeah. <laughs> go pick up a rifle from Cabela's and just Shoot one barbecued up. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, <laughs> ev- they're everywhere. Apparently, they're everywhere. Provincial Park is just <laughs> down the road here. We got to get the whole entire sounder. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you in the next episode. Yeah.